There is no better place. It's time to talk. The only way to get anything during Cork is beyond the Neil Prenderville. There you go. Fair play. Talk to Neil Prenderville. That's a Cork threat at this stage, I think. The Neil Prenderville Show on Red FM. I just love Cork people. Conversation that matters. Now then, we'll get to our newspaper review in a few moments, but while we have him available, I want to get to Christopher O'Sullivan, uh, Fianna Fáil TD. The Minister of Media has been coming under criticism uh, over her handling of the latest RTE fallout. Catherine Martin has been accused of making a serious blunder after she went on live TV and refused to express confidence in Shuani Rahalik, the chairwoman of the RTE board. And the Minister said she'd been misinformed on two occasions by Miss Nirahalig about the board's involvement uh, in approving an exit package for a former RTE executive. And as I mentioned, online too, we have Christopher O'Sullivan, uh, Fianna Fáil TD and a member of the Oroctus Media Committee. Morning to you, Christopher, and thanks for taking the call. No problem, Mick. Great you, to be with you. Uh, thanks. You, you were in the room yesterday uh, and sat through it all. You thought the minister did well, I believe. Um, however, uh, she kept going back to the line that she didn't get proper info. Is, is this two ladies making mistakes here? Uh, is it much ado about nothing, but now that it's blown up, uh, it's, it's going to run and run and run? I think it's a consequence of uh, a strained relationship, Mick. Um, so... The, the chair of the board is essentially answerable to the minister and the minister when she has queries in relation to RT or she's trying to get information RT or she's communicating with RT she does it through the chair so that, that relationship and that communication piece is really really important and um, I think that that was strained it was strained because according to Catherine Martin, of a series of, of events or a series of, as she says herself, not being able to get correct information. And it goes back to originally the resignation of, of D Forbes, where the chair had failed to inform the minister that she was going to seek uh, D Forbes' resignation. So that was the first strike, I suppose, to put it uh, that way. Um, then, uh, in relation to the Rory Coveney exit package, uh, where she... Uh, had stated that she had no oversight over that exit package, or that she, you know she she wasn't aware that it was an exit package, and she thought it was a resignation. Uh, that that happened at a meeting on I think it was um, Monday last Monday, and um, just very quickly within a couple of days, Shun informed the minister actually that wasn't the case that uh, I was aware of it. And then of course the third strike then is in relation to the Richard Collins exit package. So it it, it had become very strained. Um, then you had this. Uh, Mad situation, which which is really hard to get the head around, where the minister had reached had had reached out to the former chair to say, "Listen, we're going to send you a letter to invite you to a meeting to discuss uh, these issues." It's, we, we, you know, it's come to light that you hadn't that you did actually were aware of the Richard Collins exit package, um, and amazingly, the from our understanding, it is that the chair, Shinaradik, said that if that letter was sent to her, that she would resign. So. Then you have a further mad situation where the minister is due to go on national airways on prime time. Um, she is aware of this information. She has. She's also aware that if she sends a letter to Shinaralik, she's going to resign. So she's left in a really difficult situation. And, and I put it to the minister yesterday, listen, would it have been better to kind of try deflect from the question to try avoid answering the question and those politicians can be excellent at Mick as you well know mm-hmm. you've had enough those, Oh yeah, big um, time. Would, would, would it have been better to kind of say look I can't, something has broken, there's been a revelation about information, I'm due to meet the chair tomorrow and I can't divulge any information but having said that, the chair had said 
that she hadn't agreed to the meeting yet. So I do think that the minister was in, in, in a really difficult situation. If it had broken the newspapers the next day and she hadn't informed prime time that evening, that would have been a mess as well. So it was mm. really, it, it was it was a difficult situation. And I don't, this whole mess, um, Nick, from the payments to nobody, from our team, from the, from the musical, the, the 2.3 million loss, I don't think we can say that it's the minister's fault or we can lay it at the minister. But this is this was a bit of a, a, a lack of communication or a lack of a good relationship, I think. Okay, but there are those who would say that there's possible, even plausible uh, evidence that um, the, the minister's department should have been informed as they were in writing uh, last November of, of these things, and that Shuni Rattling made you know a genuine omission to the fact of, of remembering that this information was was already there. Or w- would you say? You know, with the minister saying, I was flabbergasted at Shuna Rattley's assertion she would retire, that there's a certain element of the tail wagging the dog here. Yeah, I think in fairness, um, and your listeners probably won't be too delighted to hear this, but I I feel that the sag is going to roll on a bit in that, to be fair to Shuna Rattley, if she wants the opportunity to come in and speak to the committee and answer, I suppose, some of the... um, statements that were made by the minister, I think she should be afforded that opportunity. I also think the former DG, or sorry, the former Secretary General of the Department needs to come in in terms of her knowledge of the oversight of the board. In relation to those November documents, I think it was brought up at the committee last night that there was a tranche of 18 documents sent to the department towards the very end of November where it was outlined that going forward that the um, oversight board would have oversight over these exit packages and details of exit packages. Um, but in fairness, that was post the Richard Collins and Rory Coveney payments, which which were exact, which were the specific questions that the minister had for Sugar Reddick. It's all very very complicated. There is certainly further questions to be asked there. Perhaps there's department officials who who weren't necessarily doing their job correctly. But I don't think. And listen, I'm not here to be a a, a cheerleader for uh, Catherine Martin or to answer her questions. But I, I don't think that. Um, uh, any of this is her fault, really. Okay. What about confidence then in Kevin Backhurst and the reason he was at these meetings and didn't pipe up as it were? He probably didn't have privilege uh, or the ability to do so. Um, they're, they're calling Tuberty the toy man, and now we're listening into uh, it was Backhurst there just to make the tea. They're calling him the tea man. Uh, <laughs> was he sort of constrained in a way? That he couldn't preempt to his chair. You know, at the session, at the session yesterday, when it was Senator Shane Castles put that question, why didn't the DG pipe up? The DG would have known that Junior Alec would have had oversight, and maybe should. Have, and I do think Junior Alec genuinely forgot or, or had, had had failed to remember, as she put it herself. The DG would have known, I'd imagine. Now, the DG could have chosen to pipe up at that meeting and say, "Listen, Sean, actually, you were aware." But is he then undermining his chair? Does that compromise his relationship with the chair? Has he undermined the chair? And I think what happened, and, and, and we need to hear from the DG on this, I think what happened was very shortly after that meeting, the DG contacted the chair and said, listen, um, you, you, you informed the minister that you weren't aware of the Rory Coveney um, uh, resignation, the fact that there was an exit package. You were in fact aware as you had oversight. And then very quickly, Shania Raleigh contacted the minister. So I think that, that, that like, certainly... Kevin Backhurst isn't coming out uh, full of glory in this mm. in terms of he did he did agree to the confidentiality clauses in these exit package, which I really still feel that we need to have oversight of and we need to know what amounts are paid and potentially we never will. And that's because the, 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 the DG did enter into those. But, you know, I, I understand as well that confidentiality clauses are a really important part of exit packages, so maybe his hands were tied there. But these calls for his head and I do have confidence in him in that and what I mean by that is... Um, 
he, he needs to prove that his message of transparency going forward, of rebuilding RT going forward. And the most important thing, Mick, is RT content is suffering here as well. We're seeing repeat after repeat. We're seeing The Simpsons and Norman Away on every two seconds. I know this, this may seem trivial, but RT need to get back to doing what they were good at, and that is good content. And they're not doing that at the moment. Um, the other thing is, if he goes with this sinking ship, who the hell replaces him? Like, who's going to want to do that job? I'd, I'd say there's there wouldn't exactly be a, a queue of people looking to take on the role. Yeah, he, he does seem to have the bottle for it. Do, do you think there was some frustration on behalf of Minister Martin and about the lack of availability of D Forbes at the very start of these hearings uh, way back last year? Yeah, I think we're all frustrated with, with that, Mick, um, because, you know, whether, whether we like it or not in terms of the, the different scandals or the different uh, things that have emerged over the last nine months. Um, D Forbes, uh, we, we say in relation to the Tuberty payments, in relation to barter accounts, in relation to uh, Toy Show, the musical, um, you know, the exit package paid to Breed O'Keefe of 450000 Unfortunately, D Forbes did have knowledge of all of these and was across all of these, so she's a key person to hear from now. Having said that, if someone um, is citing illness uh, and they can't come in due to illness like who am I to say you know well, let's dismiss that and bring her in like we have to take regard for the fact that um, she may of course genuinely have an illness that is stopping her from coming in but what we've done as a committee I understand it that we're to write again to the Forbes saying that look we will any measures that need to be taken in order to facilitate you addressing the committee whether that's Zoom or online and that we would facilitate that if that helped or at the very least that she would be able to respond in writing and, and, and afford her that opportunity Okay, let, let's let's just synopsize all of the the big issues that are surrounding OT at the moment. Of course, it kicked off with the secret payments to Ryan Toberty, and that ran and ran. Then there was the flip flop gate, uh, where they spent twenty five grand on flip flops for a kind of a summer party. Toy show, the musical, much has been written about that in the two point three or two point seven million that was lost there. Uh, we had Marty Morrissey almost on top gear as a, a star in a in a reasonably priced car, uh, which which had to go back. Other people doing deals, uh, other people getting new wheels, um, horse racing Ireland involved, new electric cars retailing for more than 70 grand given to another presenter, uh, the uh, porridge and car parks controversy I uh, heard one person uh, talking about, um, that's uh, where I think it was um, a 2FM uh, DJ uh, used a breakfast studio to flog a porridge brand. The golden handshakes, of course, and now the resignation of Shunni Rahalik. It doesn't seem to be going away. Let's get a flavour, if you don't mind, Christopher, of uh, what was going on yesterday. We have uh, Fianna Fáil TD, Neil Smith, one of your colleagues, questioning Minister Martin about the exit packages. Have you asked the question, has Dee Forbes, even though she resigned, received a package, an exit package? Yes, and and I've been told she hasn't. You have asked the question, but she hasn't received. That's uh, what I've been told. Okay, by the DG. Now, Minister Martin also said she was going to send a letter after Miss Niralik uh, failed to recollect her role in approving the exit package for former Chief Financial Officer Richard Collins. Speaking at the Oireachtas Committee last night, Minister Martin outlined exactly what happened last week. It was never my intention for this to emerge on air. I was always hoping that, I'd, and, and as I said many times, um, 
I, I was trying to afford her the opportunity to, to come in and meet me face to face, to, to be indicating you wouldn't meet um, the, the minister as a chair of a state body. I, I just couldn't believe that that, that would happen. Um, so that's why I was trying to afford the opportunity for Friday and hoping that that meeting um, would, would happen. So the $64 million question, Christopher O'Sullivan, Fianna Fáil TD, is where do we or where do RTE go from here? Um, unfortunately, there's it's going to rumble on for at least another couple of months. And I know nobody wants to hear that. Uh, and I certainly uh, don't want to be, you know, uh, there's lots, there's so much more that we need to focus on as a government in terms of uh, the real important things to people on the streets. But the reason I say it's going to rumble on is that we have this governance report that's due in uh, next month, okay, that may expose other um, uh, practices within the RT that that weren't uh, that that need to be investigated. We have, as I said before, I think we have to afford Shunyarelli the opportunity to come in and answer the statements. We we need to hear from the DG in terms of his uh, knowledge uh, of that meeting and 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 why he didn't kind of uh, correct Shunyarelli in, in in that meeting. Although I think I've already explained that. We also need to hear from the staff. So the staff of RT are the ones who, you know, the everyday staff who are around Montrose, who are, who are making things happen in the background, who aren't on these big, massive sums, who aren't getting these exit packages. They need to be, in all of this, we have, we've we never had them in the committee, and we need to hear their side of things and how this is impacting them. So, um, Is there any mechanism by, by which the staff can be heard? Yeah, we can certainly, and I, we have agreed to, to, to bring in the NUJ, which is the representative body, uh, and possibly SIF2 and staff members to hear from them. So I think can, can I just say, Christopher, regarding the NUJ, and I, I've held this contention since the start of the uh, the, the Tuberty thing, I, I think they've shone themselves with glory uh, in, in that they've taken their own employer to account without fear or favour. And if there's one saving grace about trust and honesty and openness and transparency in RTE, it certainly lies with the news and current affairs staff. Yeah, and I'm glad that you're applauding that, Mick, because I think that we have to give staff the confidence to speak up. Um, and I think that was a massive problem uh, with RTE before, in that people were people probably were aware of these practices. People were aware of these events and um, you know there was a, a former RT staff you know said it to me in passing that wait till they get their hands on the credit cards Christopher then you're going to uh, see the real uh, things that were going on so all of this was going on staff were aware but they probably felt afraid to speak up because they either were afraid they were going to be exited they were going to be moved on um, and we need to as you said give them the confidence to speak up and speak out about practices that were happening within RT and that they're able to stay then within their jobs and rebuild RT so uh, that's really important and look the, the, the Director General has, has a massive job in, in rebuilding confidence and um, he, he look he, he has brought in some new measures in terms of now that the oversight that, that the oversight board have oversight over exit packages um, he has obviously uh, introduced cuts um, he stamped out a lot of the, the those bad practices that were there within RT but we need to see more of that and uh, just get back to, I mean if, if we're still talking about this time next year then I'm afraid the the, the number could be up for RT if, if, if we're still uh, having these conversations Yeah, I, you know, you've, you've heard all the conversations and, and the innuendo that Catherine Martin threw Shuni Rahali under a bus uh, you know, sacked her on live TV in essence though, w- would you think that it's uh, it, it became time that the Minister had to kind of bare her teeth to to rid RTE of this perceived sense of massive entitlement. Um, yeah, in fairness, I don't think Shunyarelik was a part of this massive entitlement or the kind of 
the golden handshakes or the uh, you know the corporate events all of that I think in fairness that she, she had no hand after part in that I think the thing with the minister was the, and, and Shinya Wellig is that the relationship had become very strained in that the minister felt that she could no longer rely on the information she was getting from the chair. Did she sack her live on air? Look, essentially, yes, but going back to the, the predicament that she was in, she had she had been told that if, if she received a letter asking for a meeting that there would be resignation anyway. So I really, I can't see where Catherine Martin had to turn or how she could avoid it. And when she was asked the question, do you have confidence? I think there would have been more answers questions to answer if she had said yes I have full confidence in the chair considering what had happened so it's a, re- it's a really diff- it's, it's a difficult one but in fairness to Relic I think she has far more credibility um, than that in that she had no hand after part in, mm-hmm. um, in, in, in a lot of the, the really bad practices that have plagued RC you know, for the last 12 months Alright Christopher thank you for your time can I ask you one more question as a member of the Oireachtas Media Committee uh, you know as a Fianna Fáil TD as an Irish citizen do you have confidence in uh, Director General Backhurst at this stage? I do at this stage, yeah. I do at this stage, but he still has to, he certainly still has to prove himself and, and, and come through on these promises of transparency and integrity. He seems to be a tenacious guy. We'll watch him with interest. Thank you so much for coming on, and I know we interrupted your schedule, so uh, thanks a million. We'll get to our newspaper no review later. Thanks, Christopher Bye-bye. O'Sullivan, TD, uh, for Fianna Fáil. Let's go to line three and to Trevor Keegan, who's the chair of the subgroup RTE uh, in the National Union of Journalists. So good morning, uh, Trevor. Good morning. I'm not sure if you heard my compliment towards the RTE group of NUJ members. Um, I did. I did, but gladly give it again if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just, uh, just synopsize it. What I was saying to Christopher O'Sullivan from the from the Oireachtas Media Committee was, from the start, I was uh, amazed, surprised, uh, heartened, shall we say, um, by, by the fact that no fear or favour was given to RTE by members of the NUJ, that they, they seemed to conduct themselves with 100% accuracy, no matter who they were criticising. And in that, uh, shone glory on themselves and remain a steadfast beacon of transparency within RTE. I'm not looking well, for a job or anything. No, but at half nine in the morning, that's probably the best thing I've heard in a long time. Thank you very much. Um, it's it's what our remit is. I mean, I'm an elected sub-chair of the sub-branch. Emma O'Kelly is elected to the Dublin Broadcasting Branch, which primarily is RT. It's just a slight nuance of the NUJ, but we're trying to sort that one out. Um, but is also, it hard to criticise your employer? No. <laughs> in this case. Lightly, no. No, because um, these are these are issues not necessarily... We knew there was a bit of a gravy train and we weren't on board. That's probably a good thing. But we didn't realize the gravy train was as loaded as it was with cash and being thrown out willy-nilly in severance pay or exit packages that shouldn't have been approved in the first place. We didn't realize it was such a kind of cozy cartel. We, You would have heard, you know, so-and-so got moved, that happened to that person, they got a cushy number, how did that happen? And then you'd move on with your day because you had to. But now the, sh- the full glaring light of day has been shone on these issues and we are glad it has been done so. Unfortunately, it is coming at the detriment, at the moment at least, of the organisation. The hard-working foot soldiers who are delivering day in, day out services that aren't necessarily commercially uh, successful but are still part of a public service remit and that's all we give a damn about, to be honest with you, is that those people, my colleagues, my friends and myself included, do our job, get the job done in a fair and transparent culture and treated equitably across the board. Yeah, but it hasn't happened before and that's what we're fighting for. Ever harder to do, that must be, with the ever-present political sideshow. 
the political sideshow is just that. It's a sideshow. We still, I mean, in fairness to Catherine Martin, she's the first politician in a very long time that has come out and said, this is my stance on the licence fee. I want extra for funding. I say I will get this over the line. None of them, government after government after government, have failed public service media and media in general in this country. They have fudged, they've obfuscated, they've just pushed the can further and further down the road. And at last you have a minister who says, no, the book stops here, we need change. It was the only upshot and only positive that will come from this sorry mess if we get a reform of the licence fee, if we get fair funding. And that doesn't just include for RT, it includes for the likes of Red and uh, 106 and Limerick Live and all those other stations around the country and Virgin Media and everybody else gets a slice of the pie as well. You get a small slice at the moment with the the sound and vision fund from Thomas and the Man, but that's not enough. So we need fairness across the board and we need to to do our jobs and not have this constant drip 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 of more dirty details. Okay, then then the culture of Gravy Train has to stop because I can tell you that that culture doesn't exist in the in the private independent sector, uh, you know, where bottom line every penny has to, has to be looked at, where you know wage increases are fought on both sides. I need, but you, but the other side says I can't give. We need to be commercially yeah. viable. That's a huge, huge challenge for RTE. Yes, it is a huge challenge because forty three percent of our income was from the commercial sector, and I think that's where it also stems from. If we had external funding. There will always probably have to be a need. No more than BBC is massively funded in the UK, but they still have a commercial arm for sales of programmes around the world, etc., etc. You do need to have some kind of commercial entity to your main stay, which is you know the public service remit. But obviously enough as well, you the gravy chain was the fact that they had to promote these commercial interests. They had to give them flip-flops for some kind of bizarre party or whatever it might be. They had to have a membership, apparently, of some place in London, Soho House, whatever. All of that had been because of the commercial pressures on them, because the funding from commercial side was nearly matching the funding from the licensing side, which has been going down, and it's had a big, um, one of the highest in Europe, uh, rates of uh, failure to pay by the public onto the licensee. So we've had these dual mechanisms trying to exist in co-dependency, and if we had better funding, that wouldn't necessarily have to be the case. You'd have a funding model whereby we could actually do our remit without having to go and scratch the back of commercial interests yeah. constantly. Okay, about 400 jobs you represent within the organisation? Well, 400 jobs that shouldn't go. We don't see why the scandal means that we have to scale back what we do. Farm it out into an independent sector. Yes, there should be a healthy independent sector. But I've worked in the independent sector. You have no security of tenure. You have very bad paying conditions. Uh, there's no future for young people coming up to the sector. A lot of them will come in get burned out and leave. At least in RTE you have skill sets that are being honed over decades. Not just, you know, from the radio side that goes back for do for do, but from the TV side, decades since 1963, where ways of doing things and mechanisms and uh, training and skill sets have been developed for decades and they should be passed down. I recently, only last week, I was stopped in the corridor, which happened a lot lately, <laughs> obviously more than usual, but I was stopped in the corridor by a young colleague who works in the newsroom, a young journalist, she's only in a couple of years, I was asking her how she's getting on, and she said to me, a lot of my young co-workers are leaving. I presumed naively on my part that they were leaving because they are not having their six-term contracts reviewed. She said, no, 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 that's not the case. They're leaving because they fear for the future of this company. They fear they won't have a safe and uh, transparent culture to work in. They fear they won't have career progression, and they fear they won't have the jobs to stay with in the future. 
And I actually was crestfallen to be honest with you because we need them people. We do tours sometimes, school tours, etc., of the building. And they come in and they're fascinated by the fake uh, weather studio or the graphics that don't exist in real time. They're actually behind you on a blue screen and all that kind of stuff. And they're mesmerised. And I almost say to them, please, I hope some of you work here in the future. It is still and can still be a good place to work. And you will be able to create and bring good things to the screen and to the airwaves. Okay, if if there's one thing for sure, we probably haven't come to the end of the salacious stories that are going to come out. What appetite amongst your members uh, to heap more onto RTE? For instance, um, Christopher Sullivan, TD, said there was somebody in RTE told him, wait till they get around to the credit cards. To be honest, I don't know about credit cards and expense accounts, etc. But I do know that even with the two reports that are still to come, the government-backed reports or, you know, the ones that have been instigated by the government in particular, we think that's still too late expecting those to come out at the end of next month or next the end of next month. That's too late for us in terms of funding. The funding needs to be tackled now. We, it's decades that this has been you know, just kicked around as a punch bag for politicians. It needs to be tackled now. The two reports come in the tracks. Yeah, they probably shine some light and some other shiny stuff, but we still need to tackle the biggest issue in the room, which is fair funding. Okay, but of course you're you're under a kind of a a recruitment embargo. There's going to be natural shedding. Do you accept that there will maybe even have to be some voluntary departures uh, to shed the costs down to where Kevin Backhurst may have to bring them? Well, we've had this over the decades, though, Neil. We had this before, you know, shed costs, and it's always the workforce that has to be shed. But then you can't deliver and be successful and compete in a very tough marketplace, a fragmentedly tough marketplace, a marketplace that is, you know, swamped with media from outside of Ireland that have no controls within Ireland. So you can't just cut staff and expect some kind of carte blanche uh, survival because we've got numbers down about another two or three hundred or four hundred or whatever mm. it might be. There will be national attention where people leave and retire, etc., and move on to different jobs. But what we do and how we do it has to be honed and it has to have the people to do so. And we don't see why suddenly 400 people should possibly be the, the fall guys or women for this mess. For the, for the largesse of others, perhaps? For the largesse and stupidity, I dare say, for of others, yes. Okay, well, th- thanks for coming on. Trevor Keegan, chair of the subgroup of uh, RTE National Union and the journalists, and keep up the open, honest and transparent work as you guys have been doing. We'll fly the flag. We'll keep doing it. Thanks. Cheers, Trevor. Thank you. Text or WhatsApp Neil now. 0868-104-106. The Neil Prenderville Show on Red FM. And a very good morning from the Neil Prenderville Show. This is Mick Mulcahy and I'm here just for the morning. Uh, Neil back and normal business resuming uh, tomorrow and uh, Friday. So I'm just here for this morning only, uh, just in case anyone was wondering. Now, a man in his 20s is to appear in court over city fires. Neil Michael reporting as we get to our newspaper review. This is the exact Examiner Gardaí charging a man in connection uh, with several fires at retail premises in Cork City at the weekend. Detectives arrested the man, aged in his 20s yesterday afternoon, as part of their inquiries into fires at city centre businesses on Sunday. Uh, Gardaí have charged that man uh, in connection with a number of criminal damages, uh, damage incidents uh, which occurred on the 25th of February. Where are our buses? Uh, screams the big headline on the front of the Echo. A number 214 is missing. Late or early 112,000 times. Over two months at the coldest time of the year there were 112,000 
295 instances where bus air and 214 buses either did not show up for passengers waiting at a stop on the route or arrived early or late, it's been revealed. I would imagine 112 would seem uh, much more believable there. It's 112 thousand. But then again, there are many, many stops on each route, etc. So they're probably extrapolating it out. But the figures were among those released by Bus Aaron themselves in response to a freedom of information request by Sinn Féin candidate for Cork City North East, Mandy O'Leary-Hagerty. And Bus Aaron has acknowledged it's recently experienced uh, some service delivery challenges on the route, which has been identified as requiring a schedule fix. 112,000 missing late uh, or even early uh, buses. Early is worse if you miss it. Cash drive, minister's school bus plan, staying with the buses to cost €228 million Euro extra a year. Up to 100,000 more children will be taking the bus to school by the end of the decade, according to the education minister. But Minister Norma Foley acknowledges there are capacity constraints in terms of recruiting bus drivers. Transport Minister Eamon Ryan is looking at potentially lifting the cap on the age at which drivers must retire. At present, that age is 70. But there are 161,000 children using the bus to get to school and Miss Foley wants to increase this by 60% by the end of the decade, meaning 261,000 will use the public bus system. I imagine it'll be much greener uh, and uh, less congestion on the roads if that would happen. Martin faces the backlash, says the Mirror front page. Minister defends new RTE chief in a Rochtus committee uh, grilling. Politicians rounded on RTE boss Kevin Backhurst last night over his role in controversial exit packages. Members of the Oireachtas Media Committee, we just spoke to one of them, asked how he remains after the board chair, Shuani Rahla, uh, resigned last week. Mr Catherine Martin staunchly defended him in a late-night meeting, but Senator Shane Castle said either they should both be gone or both be in their jobs. Not as uh, simple as that, I think. The Irish Independent's covering the story as well. Minister knew that RTE chair was ready to quit. Catherine Martin was aware Shuani Rahala was likely to resign as RTE chair before the minister went on prime time and failed to express confidence in her. Ms Martin said she was flabbergasted by the threat. I couldn't understand how someone would try to tell the relevant minister how to manage their work. Let's go to the mail front page. More RTE. D Forbes must tell us about Nally job move and exit package. Minister demands that former Director General D Forbes shed light on how news boss against whom a complaint was made was moved and within a couple of years was the beneficiary of a confidential exit deal. Uh, Minister, uh, Media Minister Catherine Martin demanding uh, D Forbes comes forward to shed light on how the former RTE Head of Current Affairs, who was subject to internal complaints, was moved to another role and eventually the beneficiary of another confidential exit deal. Uh, let's move to the star and they're concentrating uh, on uh, Enoch Burke. Teacher Burke is still on full pay while he's in prison. Uh, teacher Enoch Burke is to remain in Mountjoy Prison on full pay. Uh, after he again refused to comply with a High Court order to stay away from Wilson's Hospital School in County West Meath. Uh, in the Mirror, Neil covered the story yesterday um, and uh, just uh, by way of a follow-up, a sports reporter called Good Girl by Brendan Rogers does not believe he meant to cause offence. Yesterday, the uh, Celtic boss blamed society for the backlash over his remark to BBC Radio Scotland's Jane Lewis 
on Sunday. Rogers was accused of sexism and branded a dinosaur over how he ended the chat after Celtic uh, defeated Motherwell 3-1. But Miss Lewis said, I don't believe there was any offence meant by Brendan Rodgers. And from my part, uh, there was none taken. Uh, and uh, we've got a little clip of that that uh, I'm going to play for you now as well. I actually heard someone use the term uh, in a pub over the weekend. I'm talking about somebody who's probably in their late 70s, um, early 80s, um, came in very, very rural disposition. I'm trying to be... Uh, trying to be vague here, uh, but very rural disposition. Uh, I went up to the, uh, the the girl, the lady behind the bar, and said, "Point Guinness, they are like a good girl." And uh, you know, it kind of stuck out that probably you shouldn't be saying that kind of thing anymore. But how many years has he been saying it without causing offence? And it's a hard habit to break. But this is the uh, Brendan Rogers little clip, uh, which caused all of the furore. I'm so delighted for the players because, like I say, there's a story being written about this group. Uh, so, uh, but we will write our own story. Can you give no. us a bit more? You can't give no, us. You don't want to no. give us a bit more insight no. into that and what you mean no. by that. No, no, no. You know exactly what I mean. I'm not. I'm. Not, I'm actually not sure. I do exactly know, know okay. what you mean. Okay. Can you? Can you tell no. us? People might be interested to know. To, to, no, no. But but you. But you're the one that's bringing that yes, up. Absolutely. So so, yeah. so can you not give okay. us some more on it? Done. Good guy. Well done. Okay. <laughs> there you go. He's done. That was kind of a throwaway remark. Uh, would you take offence to it? Please give us a call, 0818 106, or send in a text uh, with your comment to 086 106. Or have you, like me, ever heard um, um, a more elderly member of the public come to a bar and say something like, Pointing Guinness, they are like good girl. Would that cause offence to you? Do you find it patronising? Get in touch and uh, let us know. Alarm bells are sounding over phone watch. Uh, uh, an ad and a car draw with no car. Phone Watch has been told to stop saying its alarms make you four times more secure and your loved ones safer, four times safer, after complaints about the claim. One complainant said the ad was misleading as the claim of four times safer was pitched with no supporting evidence provided to back up its claim. Another complaint to the Advertising Standards Authority of Ireland considered it incorrect to say that your risk of being burgled was reduced fourfold. Uh, the radio ad which ran last year claimed installing a phone watch alarm for only €49 Euro makes your home four times less likely to be burgled. Phonewatch quoted CSO burglary figures from last March to show homes with alarms suffered four times fewer break-ins. So, is that fair enough then? But the Advertising Standards Authority of Ireland, the ASAI uh, committee, noted that the CSO data from March last year used to make the claim did not provide a breakdown between premises that were alarmed or not. Uh, and those are a quick look at the morning papers. Uh, and we're back to the phone lines and the business of the programme in a couple of moments. Text or WhatsApp Neil now. 0868 104 106. The Neil Prenderville Show on Red FM. 12 minutes to 10. Good morning. We're giving away tickets to Cork's biggest gigs this summer. Uh, and today I've got exclusive tickets to see Van the Man Morrison. And that's before they go on sale tomorrow morning. So a pair of tickets to see Van Morrison live at the marquee. Uh, It's happening on Friday the 31st of May. We want to know what was your first gig. Uh, Nice reaction on our social media channels to this last night but please text or WhatsApp 0868 104 106 106. Need a bit of a story to go with this now not just I went to see Tin Lizzy. That's not going to win you the prize Uh, but you know if you've got a little memory about struggling for the ticket struggling to get home 
what songs they played, what was unusual about the gig. But anyway, uh, getting back to Van the Man, that's what we're giving away today. Tickets for Van Morrison go on sale tomorrow, Thursday, 9 o'clock. Uh, and all summer's uh, Live at the Marquee gigs are available on Ticketmaster.ie. And just in case uh, you don't know who's playing there this year, uh, we will be featuring at the Marquee Sugar Babes, Brian Adams, The Coronas, Gavin James, Christy Moore, brilliant comedy from John Bishop, and lots, lots more I expect uh, to be announced. But Fan the Man is a Grammy Award-winning singer. Uh, he would have kicked off with a band called Them. Then he was in the band, uh, along with Robbie Robertson and Rick Danko, and uh, supporting Bob Dylan would have played at that famous Last Waltz concert uh, as well. But so much more uh, he's given to the world of uh, music and song. Singer, songwriter, author poet, multi-instrumentalist uh, and widely considered one of the most influential artists in the history uh, of music. I, I met him once, he didn't smile, uh, but that doesn't uh, take away from the fact that he's uh, a brilliant, brilliant artist. So along with uh, Van the Man, I left a few out there actually. Uh, Damien Dempsey is going to be playing with uh, Hermitage Green, Jenny Green in the RTE Concert Orchestra, the next chapter, Mick Flannery, always a great gig. He's got a special guest, Susan O'Neill, on the biggest disco. Not sure what that one's about, but I'm sure it's going to be huge. What was your best memory of your first gig? Please text or WhatsApp to 0868 104 106. Uh, Now then, we have uh, more than 40% of parents uh, have reduced food intake to ensure their children are fed. And this is coming from children's charity Barnardo's who said it was disturbing that so many parents were struggling to put food on the table for their children and I'm joined on WhatsApp by Hamp Sirmans who is a director of Feed Cork and we bid you good morning. Hamp? Uh, Good morning Nick, how are you? Very good, that's an unusual name, I know you were born in the USA in Georgia, you're working as a pastor here at at Cork Church first the origin of the name uh, that's an old family name, actually, and uh, it's a nickname. It's not actually my legal name. It's a nickname that was handed ah. down. So this nickname got handed down okay. from our family. So uh, okay. Now every week, um, Feed Cork volunteers are distributing over seven tons of food to more than six hundred people in Cork City from your base at Cork mm-hmm. Church on Lower Oliver Plunkett mm-hmm. Street. Tell me about the beginning of your involvement here. How did you get started? Uh, and what sort of problems are you seeing and are they growing? Yeah, we started in 2017 with five baskets. We started supporting a few families after a big canvassing um, crusade. You could say we, we I think we blitzed about three to 5,000 homes throughout hard-hit areas where we thought people would be interested and uh, made people aware of a service that we were going to be offering to offer uh, emergency foods. Um, to families with a value of roughly 100 to 120 euros per uh, food allotment. Um, we initially started that to help people keep them in their homes. Uh, you know, there's a lot of attention that goes, and people do some wonderful things with the homeless on the streets here helping. But we felt like there we could do a little bit more on our end to help people stay in their homes. So that's what we did, and uh, it grew. Um, and, you know, with the cost of living crisis after COVID, especially with inflation, we saw a sharp increase in people um, accessing our services, our clientele. Um, you know, we climbed from, I think, in one year from from supporting around 1,200 clients 
all the way up to I think at the peak of it, it was around forty two hundred annually. So uh, uh, that's incredible. Ha- ha- well, where, yeah. where do you get the food, and, and how do you get it to the people? So we have different sources. So one of our main partners uh, is Food Cloud. Another is the um, Department of Social Protection. So through Food Cloud, we purchase food to them. Uh, we're part of. We're one of their members there. So we would purchase surplus food that would be well and day healthy uh, food that would be um, given to them and donated to them, along with other, along with uh, uh, the Department of Social Protection, which is the SMD program. It's an EU funded program where we all the staples are provided for. So all your dry goods and that you would you would be given all the staples to that. So. It's really a, a mishmash. We we pull together. We have delivery drivers or collection drivers going out on Monday and Tuesday, and and sometimes Wednesday night. The shops, Lidl. We go to Lidl, Aldi. Uh, we go to Marks and Spencers. They've been a huge support in Tesco. So we would take in what we can from them. Lots of breads and pastries. So and this this is uh, food that's very safe to eat. Yeah. It's still in date, uh, oh, but 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 running out absolutely. running towards its best before date. But you, you, am I right? You, you, you would hope to give uh, at least a four to five day supply of food to each of the recipients. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So the total value of that, just to kind of put things in perspective, um, we were able last year we do our estimations and what the food value that we were able we were able to put one point two million euros back into the the households of local families. Um, you know, through this program, which I think is incredible. And it's all down to the volunteers and the partners we have, you know. Volunteers, so, 40 uh, of, you have 40 of them, uh, yeah. and they're spending, yeah. you reckon, 450 hours a week. That's each volunteer giving a day and a half a week. Yeah, That's a well, big commitment. more than that. Actually, those numbers are, yeah, those numbers, I've, I've been uh, told that those numbers are, are too conservative uh, as someone in the know, but we we also that doesn't take into account the number of uh, corporate volunteers that are coming into those. That would be our our team, our, okay. our feed court team. And on top of that, uh, yeah, we I think we yeah I think we logged in. I don't know how many. Uh, anyway, I, I wouldn't want to give the wrong numbers, but well over twenty five thousand volunteer hours last year. That's incredible. And, and how, how would somebody who's feeling the pinch apply for your services? Is it discreet? Oh, it's very discreet. Like we we take uh, we have a phone number that they can text in or call into. Um, we we take uh, clients to Facebook uh, messaging and also to Instagram. So people can message into us, and please forgive us if, again, we're a volunteer organization. Sometimes we can't get to everyone right away, but we do our best, and uh, we book them in for appointments. It's very discreet. It's an appointment-based system. We used to it. Used to it was when people would just show up uh, before COVID, but afterwards we had to come back to a more, um, you know, a, a system that worked better for us. So what we can do, what they do, is they make an appointment. They come in. Um, on a Wednesday or Thursday, they come. But we have a free cafe, so a lot of times people would have to sit and wait to to go into the food hall. And we've made it as much like a shop as we can. So you're not just getting a bag of food and heading out the door. You're able to pick and choose what you want to take okay. away. Okay, and that's at Cork um, Church in Lower Oliver Blunkett Street, is it? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Okay, yeah. we, we, and you can find us on the web at feedcourt.com. Also on Facebook, I uh, can see what we do there and Instagram. 
yeah, we, we would hope that your service would con- contract a little bit and you'd be doing less next year. Unfortunately, yeah. that's probably not going to be the way of it. Yeah, we 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 don't want to be here. You know, we're not. Um, we're and we're working hard now. We we working with the Department of Social Protection. We actually have caseworkers here on site that help people when they come in uh, to to process them in a way and help them in a way that they don't need to access emergency food service and get off of any kind of uh, food dependency like that because it's not ideal for anybody. Mm-hmm. To be coming into a situation like this, so well, I have to so say, Ham, like um, yeah. Cork Penny dinners get rightfully uh, they get lots of uh, promotion and lots of publicity for everything they do. I think you could do a little, little more of it uh, because what you're doing has, yeah. I'd say, largely gone unnoticed uh, to the general public. Anyway, half a million meals, over nine thousand food parcels, uh, over four hundred tons of food provided over the year mm-hmm. to three thousand eight hundred annual clients. We salute you, Hamp. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, thanks, Mick. Appreciate the call. Thanks very much. Hamp Sermans, uh, Director of uh, Feed Cork. And you can look up Feed Cork online. The Neil Prenderville Show on Red FM. Conversation that matters. And it's Mick Mulcahy in for Neil just for today. He's back bright and early in the morning. Now, the sixth Ireland's Young People in Alcoholics Anonymous, or I-R-E-Y-P-A-A, convention at the Falls Hotel in County Clare next month is happening. And there's an open meeting which the public were asked to attend on Friday, the 8th of March at 8pm. And to talk to us about that, we've got Sandra on line one. Hi, Sandra. Hi. Hi, Mick. Okay. Alcoholism is not something you would readily associate with uh, the younger cohort. It would seem... Maybe I'm wrong to be uh, an, an affliction of the middle age, but of course, uh, from the age of eighteen or even younger, it can get a grip, can't it? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And I suppose it's really important for young people out there to know that, like, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. You don't have to be living on the streets. You don't have to be homeless in order to to address your issue with alcohol. You know, um, it's about where where has it got you mentally, like. Um, the shame, the fear, the remorse that you you can actually get recovery at any stage. You know, you don't have to be on the bottom rung. Um, and it's really great to see younger people coming into recovery and coming into AA and getting that freedom from from addiction. You know. Can I ask you about your own story? Can you tell us that from the start? Yeah, yeah, no problem. Um, so I suppose. Like, I, I had a great time for years drinking and drugs are part of my story as well. Um, I had a great time. I partied, like all my friends. It was the, the done thing, you know. Um, and over the years, it got worse. It became a dependency. Um, it was great until it wasn't, you know. Um, I had my first child quite young. Um, and she would have seen me a lot in addiction. Um, and it just, it, it takes, and for me, it took... It takes everything, you know. It takes your dignity, your 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 soul, you know, and yeah. you're left feeling hopeless and helpless. Um, and for me, coming into the rooms, like and putting down the drink and the drugs, it's not something I could have done on my own. You know, um, I did try it on my own for a long time, but it wasn't until I got the support of the fellowship and uh, other people in recovery that's what helped me put down the drink and the drugs. And then um, once, uh, like, you know, when you put down the drink and the drugs, then, like, that's that's the beginning, you know. Like, abstinence is great, and it's what's needed to get good recovery, but that's only the beginning. Like, the rest comes afterwards. Then it's how do you live sober and live well, 
you know, and have a good life and have fun. Like, we've great fun, you know, we really do, I must say. Um, how to do that, you know, and how to cope with life without drinking drugs, you know, that's the piece that I get great help from the fellowship and my sponsor and other women in recovery, you know. Yeah. Well, when did you realise you had a problem? What age were you? Um, do you know what? I think in every alcoholic or addict, I think you know, you know when you have a problem. Like I would have known a long time before I got into recovery that I had a problem. And I think like each individual will know themselves if they have an unhealthy relationship with, with alcohol or drugs. Um, so I probably knew for a long time before I was ready for help, you know what I mean? And that's the thing with addiction and, and alcoholism is somebody needs to be ready they need to be ready you can't force it upon someone um, but the beauty of it is is that there's places like AA and the fellowship that are there for people when they do need help you okay. know so yeah did I knew I knew probably a long time before I got into recovery um, but for me it had to come to a point where where I was very broken mentally and physically and emotionally, everything, you know. I'd okay. hurt a lot of people, a lot of loved ones, so I had to get to that point. And that's just my journey, and everybody's journey is quite individual and quite different, you know. But that's my journey, and luckily I was brought to a meeting by a friend of mine, my very first meeting, um, and that's how I happened to... I always say recovery found me, you know. I've been very blessed. Rather than me finding recovery, recovery found me, and that's, you know, that's what it's there for. It's there to help people. Okay, and and did you were you slow to go to the fellowship? I'm I'm, I'm, try, I'm trying to. I have an impression that yeah, the fellowship I, is is once again, and I'm, I'm I could be completely wrong. Uh, I've, I have an impression that the fellowship would be more geared to those more mature people that it wouldn't have the grow the attraction for younger people. Is that just misnomer? It is, yeah, it is, definitely. Like, for me, and being around kind of a good few years in recovery, like, I go to fellowships, different fellowships and fellowships where there's a mix of people and a mix of ages, and and I get an awful lot from the older crowd, you know, that have nuggets of wisdom that have been around in recovery a long time, but I get an awful lot from the younger crowd too, and uh, putting myself in that category in the younger crowd, being able to be around people that are in the same position, in the same age group, dealing with the same kind of life situations, um, but no, it's definitely not the case anymore that, that it's just an older group. Like young people in recovery today, there's just like we have the best crack. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we do. Like it's it's so beautiful. So I suppose if anybody's out there and kind of fearful around going to a meeting, like that's that's where I was too in the beginning, you know. Um, but it doesn't matter how if you and, and one thing I struggled with was am I bad enough, you know? Am I bad enough to go to a meeting? And maybe I'm not that bad, you know? So I suppose that's one thing that I'd say to people is go and uh, go to a meeting and check it out. You will be most welcome. You will be most um, looked after and cared for and check it out. And only only that person then can decide if it's for them or not, you know? But, yeah. um, now, you're eight years in recovery, yeah. Sandra, so congratulations on every yeah. day of that. Um, everybody's situation, everybody's story is different, of course. You had a child yeah. while you were actively addicted and uh, that child was quite yeah. quite young but witnessed you an active addiction and then you had two more yeah. two more to come along so so one one, yeah. one to heal really along with you and and and, and two yeah. two to recover and fight for would that be fair enough yes absolutely yeah absolutely um and it's difficult you know and and getting into recovery and like there was a lot of shame and guilt around not being present for my older child you know um and 
there was a lot of hurt on their part as well. So that's taken time to heal and rebuild and they're they're actually on their own recovery journey, which is beautiful, you know. Um but it's through the fellowship and other parents and other women who've been in similar situations that I've been able to you know, kind of um, heal that relationship um, and we've both been able to heal that relationship and, and grow together in recovery, I suppose. But again, something that's very, very difficult on your own. You know, you kind of need that support. Um, I did anyway. I definitely needed the support of, yeah. of other members and the group. And are, are you somebody like, uh, I've heard Billy Connolly saying many, many times how fondly he looks back on the times he was drinking because he had great fun. I but then realizing yeah. that, that that's yeah. not for me, it's not a, that's not meant to be a part of my life anymore, uh, is now the happiest he's ever been uh, in in staying yeah. clean and sober. I would agree. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's times. I mean, I, I can I can look back and kind of think fondly of of some of the memories. You know what I mean? But again, like that's kind of it's like a relationship you know it's all romantic and all honeymoon period in the beginning you know Um, but you know it doesn't always end that way (laughs) do you know what I mean so for me anyway my drinking yeah of course there's times where I had I had great times and I had fun but I do know now that that it's not in my life today and it's it has no place in my life today it serves its time thankfully I hope you know I only hope and final question Sandra Final question, how, yeah. or maybe there's a two or three questions in this. Um, how hard was it? Did it ever get easy? Uh, and is it hard today? Okay, how hard was it? Um, I won't sugarcoat it. It was hard. Uh, getting getting into, you mean getting sober? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, it was difficult. It was. It is hard. Um, does it ever get easy? Uh yeah, it does. It gets easier and it gets better. Um, like there's no comparison. Like it's it's a swap. It, there's it's it, it's the best swap, you know. So um, and what was the last question? Sorry. Uh, I think how hard was it? Uh, did did it get does easier? It get easier? Uh, is it yeah. in any way hard today? Um, it, it, like it's it's okay. So like life is hard in general. Okay. Um, but life and addiction was hell. You know, um, so getting into recovery, yeah, it was hard. It was difficult. Uh, it's challenging. Uh, it takes action. It takes, you know, um, courage. But it's not as hard as, as as the ducking and diving when you're in active addiction as the, you know, lying to yourself. Like, that was a lot harder. Um, does it get easier? Yes, it does. It does get easier. Um, and is it difficult today? Um, like, no, like not as difficult. I still have to work at it. I have to work at it every day. Um, but life is life can be difficult. But today, I have the help and the support and the tools to help me through them. Do you know what I mean? So does that make sense? It does. It does. And and you still continue yeah. to enjoy the support of the fellowship, do you? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Like it's 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 priceless. You know, it really is. Like. All right, Sandra, well done. Eight years in recovery, three kids, alcohol definitely in the rearview mirror, and life is much different today. Congrats as well on getting your master's degree since you came into recovery. What are your master's in? Thank you. Uh, I have a master's in uh, mindfulness-based well-being. Oh, fantastic. So you're helping others as you go as well? As I go, yeah. That's great. Thanks, Sandra. 
Thanks, Mick. Take Cheers. Care. Thanks. Bye bye. Now, Sean was in line two, and Sean was around 13 when he first got into drink and drugs. Good morning, Sean. Morning. How did it start for you? Um, just like most of my friends, um, you know, we'd grown up in a community in North Cork, and it was just, you know, you'd have to shoot drinks maybe at the weekends, at least they did when I when I was younger. And, um, you know, for me, instantly, it put me at ease with myself. And, uh, you know, I always felt a bit out, but with a few drinks in me, I felt totally racked. And I suppose it progressed from, you know, weekend drinking to every time I was 16, 17, to a few times a week. Is it a rite of passage in this country more than others uh, for those who are under 18 to be, you know, be seen by their peers to be mature enough or hardy enough to be drinking? Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. Um, you know, there's the pressure on you to, at least it was when I was back there, uh, there was the pressure on to, you know, just give me the confidence to uh, talk to other people and sort of feel part of. So, um, yeah, I did feel that. And I, I needed the drinks. Um, but there was definitely friends of mine that were more into sports. You know, there's groups that definitely, definitely, and I felt into the group that were drinking and not and drugging. All right. Was there a history of addiction in the family or were you... There was, yeah, there was. On one side of the family now, it's, uh, you know, there was a lot of addiction, uh, drink especially. Uh, and what about those who argue then that you would have had a predisposition to the addiction? That it, it, that it ran yeah. in the family. Would you, would you counter that? Yeah, look, I don't, I don't go into it like that. You, know, you always hear two sides of it, nature, nurture. And uh, all I know is, and I, and I do think about it, obviously there's addiction on one side of the family, but all I know is, that, um, you know, some people in my family are grand. Actually, most of my sisters and brothers are actually, they're not, they don't have this um, this disease or they're not alcoholics, and I do. And uh, I suppose it's luck of the draw, maybe. Yeah, okay. So, um, did you find yourself separating then from your other drinking pals as they progressed in life and you didn't progress quite as fast? Oh, I did, yeah, 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 I did. So you could see, I suppose, the difference between me and my friends became apparent in their 20s. Um, you know, I was in college. I was actually probably in every college in Ireland because I wasn't able to be consistent. I was dropping out of college, missing exams. And, um, you know, that then I eventually did finish college. Um, after, uh, but what happened, I suppose, is just from normal living after that, you know, guys and girls were settling down and their jobs and they're, they're very steady and, you know, um, groundless, whereas I, was, I always struggled and um, I was totally inconsistent. And that was probably the biggest difference I've seen. And, uh, you know, that probably compounded to, you know, a lot of self-hate just because I was always measuring myself against those people. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, I also knew within myself that um, drink was a problem then. How, how did you fund it all, Sean? Sorry? How did you fund it? Yeah, I suppose I, was, I always worked. I always had a job. I, I, like, I was always, the whole way through college, I had a job um, prior to college. And, you know, a lot of drinking at home. Um, yeah, there was a lot of weekend drinking as well. And it wasn't really the quantities. It was just what used to happen to me when I go out and drink. And it was a lot of, like, you know, crazy behavior. And um, so, so I just funded it through, um, you know, jobs, I suppose. Yeah. So your, your story is a, is a good one. Um, but it started off with two of your peers, I think, going into addiction recovery. And that gave you the kind of spur when you saw how one of them, how good one of them was looking. Yeah, exactly. It's all, for me, it's always attraction rather than promotion. Even us speaking here today, you know, you, you can't make someone, or you, I wish you could because I have friends and family that are in addiction now. I wish I could just pick them up and bring them into recovery. But that's not the way it works. And it didn't work like that for me. My two friends uh, that I considered to be as bad as me, you know, we were probably in our friend group. We were 
the people that were you know, most troublesome, I suppose, and uh, both of them went into recovery uh, early, like I did in my 20s, and um, they visited me. I was living up the country, and they visited me, and, um, you know, they were just, they just had what I wanted. Like, and they told me they'd gone to treatment. They said now they're in the fellowship A, and uh, one of them was back playing football. He was going off on the holidays with my friends again. He was living a normal life. He was happy. Like, I could see it. He was just radiating. Uh, your contentment and I, that just really I was like I, it, it just planted the seed that I was like I need to do this I need to I can have this life if I can just you know conquer the drink problem yeah okay let, let, let's just concentrate on the moment you decided to go uh, to attend a fellowship meeting um, w- w- was yeah. that preceded by some denial ah sure I don't need their help at all and uh, and, and then perhaps was there any stigma stigma attached to it or uh, a little bit of shame that you would you'd be standing up. My name is X, and I'm an alcoholic. Is, is is there that sort of stigma before you go in, and then suddenly you find you know something? This isn't so bad at all. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. It's, it's that's the story of my life. Contempt court investigation. Do you know, I have I, I form an opinion on someone without actually experiencing it, and exactly that with a. I was very like resistant to going into a. Only this image was all going to be down and outs and you know hard cases and you know I just had this whole thing before I ever went in but like I said to you my friend had gone into recovery before me and then some friends of mine brought me to meeting and um, I suppose look what they said to me at my first meeting was just come back come back for a few weeks before you actually make up your mind but I do remember at my first meeting being this, I can't even describe like the friendliness and the and the handshakes and, and the people like welcoming you and telling you you know giving you that sort of identification and also that sense of love that you get and telling you you're doing great and just ex- explaining I suppose how hard it is out there and probably more love and appreciation than you'd experience in your local pub <laughs> I could find it there as well but yeah it was a different kind of love yeah. <laughs> it was definitely a different kind of love but uh, yeah it was just really like it was just such kindness and um, you know I suppose I'm a seeker like, and I've always been seeking somewhere to fit in yeah, and uh, the, the old the old saying ring, rings true as well, Sean. When you're drowning in the river, you got to be an active participant in your own rescue. Uh, otherwise, you'll drag down those trying to save you. You found that in the fellowship, yeah. and then life life became <laughs> did, quite yeah. good. You you also uh, went and got a degree, did you? Yeah, so I just uh, probably uh, I finished off uh, another degree. I went back. I'd already finished college, but I did something I really loved. I went back and, and did that on top of what I'd done, and uh, you know, all all life just my life's very normal now just did the I suppose did the things that my brothers and sisters were doing um, and all the, the drama just went away and yeah I uh, got my degree and started the business and you know um, met my wife and all, all regular life stuff but I feel I wouldn't have been able to do if I hadn't I got the help from the meetings yeah so you, you, you came into recovery when you were in your 20s I was came in when I was in my 20s yeah, yeah so no. I came in young so like there's a lot of a lot of young people you know, I felt, I felt at the time um, I was, which is, I made them too young, but I was ready for it. Yeah. Uh, and you're married now, four kids, your own business. Uh, what, what's life like having Hooch in the in the rearview mirror? Oh, brilliant. Absolutely. Look, it's, of course, there's some people, of course, I've missed, I'd love to be able to go out socially and have a few drinks. And I, and I often go out with my brothers and they have it, but it's just not for me. I wouldn't take the, you know, I wouldn't take the risk with the life I'm living now is, um, you know, I'm very, um, just, just very happy. Like, very, very happy. Like, didn't think I could ever have this life. I suppose and, uh, it's like taking the know. first cigarette after 10 years. Asher, I'm cured now. I'll only have the one. 
you I've done that a few times myself already. <laughs> I've gone back and then a few times I said I have a cigarette and then I go back in the cigarette, but it's not as bad as a drink. So yeah, just even it's the exact same premise though. You know, and I've seen it with friends of mine. Um, you know, we, we build this great life and you know, sometimes you think I can have the one and look, I just don't wouldn't take that risk and there's no need for me, I suppose, to yeah, this is, this is the first two conversations. We'll have another one uh, after the commercial break. But the common thread here is the service and love that you got from the fellowship. Do, do you give some of that service back to the AA? Yeah, one hundred percent. Like I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be sober except for the help I got. Like, uh, like I probably didn't mention the people that pick you up for meetings. I was living in a house with ten other ten other lads. And um, you know, didn't have a job earning, and there was people that picked me up every evening, brought me coffee, brought me out for dinner, uh, helped me every step of the way up to this present day. So, like the major part of recovery is you can only keep what you have by giving it away. So, like my primary purpose, and I, I think most people in A's primary purpose is always just to help someone else. And it's not like you don't have to make big like token efforts. Pick up the phone and ring someone, ask them how are they doing, just struggling. And like like it was done to me, bring them out for coffee. Um, it doesn't need to be anything spectacular. Just those simple things made such an impact in my early recovery. Yeah. Well, every success for the future. Best of luck with the family and the business. Uh, and uh, Thank ho- you. you know, hope it looks very, very firm to me that you are. You're, you those years are well behind you. Life has so much more to offer now uh, from a place of sobriety. It does, yeah. And thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. All right, Sean, and thank you, thank you for telling us your story as well. I hope that's part of the part of the confidence process and part of the. I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's no more cleansing needs to be done at your stage, but uh, I think it's 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 in service to those who may be considering uh, attending a fellowship meeting and, and perhaps uh, seeking some assistance from the AA. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Thanks, Sean. Good morning. Call Neil now. Oh eight one eight one zero four one zero six. The Neil Prenderville Show on Red FM. Twenty eight minutes to eleven. The Neil Prenderville Show with Mick Mulcahy. Neil is back tomorrow. Interestingly enough, uh, hearing that uh, Shania Twain is coming to Leeside. Uh, if you've any doubts that it's going to be a good or a bad show, and you're saying, eh, I don't know. I don't know what should be any good. Have a look at the uh, Shania Twain documentary on Netflix, uh, detailing. Her career, her time married to Mont Lang, uh, the devastation that uh, separation caused her, uh, and her fight back to really the pinnacle of the country music and uh, rock pop country, I suppose, music again. Uh, I think that will be a spectacular concert. So check out that on Netflix, the uh, Shania Twain story. Let's get to Paul's story. He's on line one. Hiya, Paul. Hi, Mick. How are you? Good. You're 19 months in recovery, not as long as our last two um, yeah. contributors, but 19 months, a year and a half, all the same. Yeah, yeah. No, it's been a, it's been a journey, all right. It's been a, a changing point in my life, really. Um, come to that stage of acceptance with with that I that I'm that I'm a, an addict, an alcoholic, you know. Um, but it's been a, it's been the best decision I've ever made, really, is to. To trust in 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 the fellowship, like and, and this way of life, like you know, it's guided me on to. You know, I'm 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 good in myself today, like in the, I never was when I when I actively drank, you know. Yeah, is is that because you you didn't feel worth it when you were in the throes of addiction? I suppose look, just to describe uh, addiction for me, like is you know when I was young, like I'd always suffer with stress, fear, worry, and anxiety. I'd feel emotions deeply, you know, and it was. I was I'd very obsessive mind then to escape from those feelings constantly. So it was football and there was other stuff. And then when I was introduced to drink, um, 
it completely took them, them feelings away from me, you know, and, and it provided me with that escapism. But, but where, where it led me then is what makes me an alcoholic, uh, I suppose, Mick, is that the obsession for more. So, like, when I picked up that drink and took that drink, um, I was I was obsessed with getting the next drink and the next drink, and that would completely suppress the emotions that I struggled with. Um, but, but it was the consequences then because of it. At the start, you don't see it. But like I, I describe the addiction really as 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 the great remover, you know, and it removed so much for me so quickly in a way of like responsibility, mm-hmm. respect for myself and others, you know, moral values, you know, and and lastly, and and I speak about it because it was a blessing really that you know I was given the gift of desperation of I I I, I was hopeless really I I I believed that I couldn't I couldn't stop. I actually truly believe that, and it, it led me to place of lose my will to live. You know, I yeah. didn't want to live anymore because I couldn't stop. And then that, that then, uh, thank God, I got that gift of desperation. It's, it's, it's that changeover from it being a happy part of your life to it being exactly. a huge dependency yeah. part of your life. Yeah, that, that because at the start, at the start, as I said there, like you, you, you'd get that escapism from the alcohol yeah. or whatever addiction that it is. It takes you away from from your feelings, you know. I, I, re- I read a very powerful line uh, in an article written about the late George Best uh, and in the history of George Best, and it went like this: Alcohol, once the lubricant of success, became the refuge from failure. Yeah, yeah, because it, as I said, it, it provides it provides me with that escapism from those feelings. But what I was doing on the other side then is removing everything from my life and removing myself. Like it was like a soul sickness. It removed, it removed Paul. Like you know, it, I, I became a shell of myself. I did. I, I lost consistency. I lost discipline. You know, I it it just it, it really just led me to a place where where I never want to go back. Basically, you know, and that's why I that's why I choose. Like with w- w- how how I how I was introduced to the fellowship really is when I was at that place where I was looking, I my will to live was removed. And I was saying, how did I end up here, you know? How did I end up, like, how did, how did drink take all this from me? So the, the, the addiction to alcohol had stripped you of your values, your self-respect, morals, your responsibility. Uh, and finally, yeah. and almost very tragically, unless you had an intervention, stripped you of your own will to live. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. So I suppose when I was at that place, like, in, I, I remember being being at home and being being in that place is, is the most frightening place I've ever been in my life basically and I I, I listened to uh, the Tonari's podcast at that time you know and yep. they gave me really hope I suppose look I I reached out to Timmy um, and he directed me towards the fellowship and, and treatment centre and thank God, I suppose if it wasn't for the like that's where I got my introduction to recovery was the Tonari's uh, podcast you know and, and and I suppose I, I, I just from there on in then like I'm more I'm early in recovery but I quickly realised that I need to trust these people because they're after turning their lives around you know and that's a big thing in recovery for me is trust you know you have to trust like um, well, was, was it easier to trust the fellowship than you might have imagined because uh, I'm sure and I have no experience of it but I'm sure that very quickly you'll realise uh, that these people have no agenda here against me yeah. only for me yeah the, yeah, the biggest thing for me, Mick, was 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 that I could identify and connect with them. 
you know, what what they were saying and where they were in their life, I was there. And what did they do to change? It was regu- regular meetings in the fellowship support each other. I suppose that's that's the whole kind of foundation of of recovery is 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 the connection yeah. with others. But I, I, I suppose it's 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 the mirror connection with Timmy Long on the podcast as well that yeah. that you identified and forced, and then you were able yeah. to trust him to give you the advice to go for the proper yeah. help. Yeah, and and he, and and they did. And to be fair, I've done. I trusted the people. I I just every day like it's it's difficult. Like you know, there's everyone's like I still suffer emotionally because there's stuff going on in life you know for everyone has stuff going on like there's there's loss there's addiction in families there's illnesses but it's how I cope with that stress where or worry fear and anxiety you know you know I, I reach out every day like I, I put recovery as, recovery gave me two hands really one hand to get help that I need every day pick up the phone go out to my meetings and the other hand is to, is to help others which I try and do today you know so I've been given two hands back in recovery, like, and 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 I need them every day, you know. And how 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 much of that is you saying, you know, something? Whatever else happens, I'm on my own journey now, and other people, whether I can help or whether they want my help or not, are on their own journey. And sometimes, yeah. sometimes our paths may remain parallel and may never intertwine. Exactly, like that's that's the difficult part. Like you know, as Sean said earlier, like is I'd love those people around me, and I'd love to show them what they could have. Like you know, but I suppose if if I'm if I'm being honest, honest with you, early recovery, you have to. Do, I I I I didn't trust. I didn't. I wasn't patient. I suppose they are the they are the things that I've been taught through the fellowship. You have to trust. You have to become patient. Everything doesn't get 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 well so far. You know, like or. So so quickly, everything doesn't fix just because you put down a drink. You have to have patience and trust the the, the, the recovery road, like you know. And like I, I I like you know, I suppose I inflict like life happens to all of us, as I said. Like you know, there's illnesses, addictions, there there's 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 loss, there's grief that comes into everyone's life. But I suppose I've no control over that that suffering coming at me. It's my reaction to it. But I have control over my addiction today, and I quickly realise. By picking up a drink, that was inflicting more suffering on me and my family. So I choose just for today that that uh, that Paul won't inflict any suffering yeah. on myself. You know. So, so the the fellowship, if you like, changed your perspective on life, gave you that little bit oh. more maturity, and and, and the ability yeah. to be able to stand back and say, um, you know, the gates of hell are open here. I'm getting out. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the way I describe it. Yeah, it was you know, it was just I suppose it was like. Um, yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I suppose yeah. Just, just like they, they did change my whole perspective, perspective on life. Like you know that that this is this is the way for 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 Paul. Like you know that this is yeah. this is the, this is the past. That no, what what I've got back in my life since I've came in, it shows me that I am on the right path. You know, you know I am consistent. I am responsible. I have a bit of discipline in my life. You know, I'm able to help others. I'm able to smile. I'm able to. You know, get out and enjoy myself and not watching over my back and you know I don't suffer with that paranoia anymore Can, can, I, can I be so personal Paul as to ask you uh, 19 months in how have relationships repaired or improved with those you may have hurt along the way Oh yeah very well yeah very well relationships yeah they're very well because I suppose if you take take the, the, the drink away from 
from Paul, like I'm a different person, you know. Um, no, we have the program. We have the program to show us as well that that uh, you know you you have to constantly look at yourself, like you know you have to constantly look at my behaviours, my character defects, and stuff like that, you know. But but I definitely like it. It's it's turned around three sixty, like you know, since I since I came into recovery, like. But you have to work at it, you know. As Sam just said earlier, like you have to work on it. It's 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 a daily program, you know. You have to have to work on it daily, like. Okay. Advice for people out there who may be listening, may be triggered or affected by some of the uh, conversations we're having today. And I will give out some details uh, for alcoholicsanonymous.ie just at the end of this interview. Advice for anyone there who's considering, you know something, I'm a little too dependent for my own liking. I wonder do I have a problem or I have a problem. I'd like to get help. What would you say to them? I suppose I, what I'd say to really Mick is that you know you're not alone like you know I did suffer and like there is there is a solution like the solution is to, to reach out to hand for help like you know because there's help all around us and, and the hardest part is for us to accept it and ask for it so yeah. that's been the turning point in my life is me you know having the humility to say I need help here and um, and 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 Thankfully, I've been carried by by the people in the fellowship. Like you know, they yeah. really carried me. Like and 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 they're always there. Do you know, they're always there. Like one one day, I struggled so much. One day, I picked up the phone fourteen times to ring different members, and I stayed sober that day. Sometimes you just need to do that. You just need to develop endurance and hang in there. But I suppose for people that are out there that are suffering. Taking in their suffering by picking up the phone and asking for help. Yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of kind of like the lifeboats in a way. You know, you hear the you hear the big rescues. We've had three people now rescued, if you like. You know, they they had to be willing to be rescued by the fellowship. Yeah. But you know, it's constantly there in the background uh, as kind of the lifeboats are. If I can make yeah. an analogy, always ready to help. Yeah. yeah, and you know what? It's the first time in my life that I've found peace through the fellowship and the program. So, like, what I what I say to anyone even coming in that come in and come out I said just give yourself the opportunity to find that peace you know to, to be proud of who you were and how you behave today not not how you behaved in the past but how you behave today that you have an intention to not hurt and harm anyone this recovery gives you that opportunity you know to just to be a, a, a normal human being really a person of society like yeah, can, can, I, can I recommend a show to you uh, there's a guy yeah. I'm acquainted with and I've had great uh, great results and people coming back to me and saying thanks for referring me to this guy his, old, his name is also Paul uh, but with him you can immerse yourself in, in a kind of a riveting exploration of life changing motivational tools and maybe 19 months in you're ready for that now uh, it's happening in the Opera House uh, it's a 25 euro ticket I'm afraid but it's Saturday 23rd of March uh, and it's called Hello My Friend with Paul McCarthy this is a kind of a transformative journey uh, live show uh, and gives you all the tools to un- unlock um, profound and lasting change in your life, if that's what you want. I'll just give it a little a plug there because uh, it's a local guy doing good. Uh, he's a not-for-profit not guy, and maybe you'd enjoy that, Paul. I can't get you a free ticket, but uh, I'm sure it'd be well worth going to. Perfect, thanks a million. All right, Paul, thanks, thanks, for, thanks thank very much. Once yeah, ag- thank you. Thanks, cheers. Now, once again, the 6th IREYPAA, Ireland's Young People in Alcoholics Anonymous Convention, is happening at the Falls Hotel. Now, the Falls Hotel is in County Clare, and it's happening next month, and there's an open meeting which the public can attend on Friday the 8th of March at 8pm, and Alcoholics Anonymous.ie has details of all the local meetings in Cork, which stretch from Castletown Bear to Yall. 
and everyone uh, everywhere in between. Or if you want any more details, you can call 01 Killian. How's it going? Very good. You've got a strange one. You were just 12 years of age and you went to a gig in Cyprus. Yeah. Tell tell us about it. The Berg in Cyprus, yeah. Um, My father was in the army and he was serving on the UN base in in Nicosia. And then Christopher came and as I recall now, I'm a bit hazy now. It's uh, 1992, I think it was. And uh, kind of Christopher came, but he was the kind of first kind of, I suppose he was considered a major international artist. By yeah. Cyprus, anyway, he was, and um, he was the first one to come to Cyprus, I think, since the, the war, which was in the 70s. So it was kind of a big deal, he was kind of the first person there. Oh, yeah, the that, that would have been a big deal, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so he, he did an outdoor gig in a stadium. He put on, in fairness to him now, like most people think Chris de Berg, you think Lady in Red. Oh, that would have been uh, that would have been 1986. I mean, his his yeah. his international star would probably be on the wane by 1992. Well, it? I'd say it probably was a little bit, yeah. But I suppose most people forget, you know, don't pay the ferryman and Spanish train songs yes. like that. You know, he, he was a bit of a rocker, I suppose. Um, but it was actually a great show. In fairness, I mean, I've been to, I wouldn't be a regular concert goer, but I've been to a few since then. You know, he'd definitely be up there from terms of like putting on a show, being a bit of a showman. He was, you know, really really good on stage. Yeah, and that's what it's all about, isn't it? Push it up and play the hits. Yeah, yeah, and he did. He played all the hits, like, in fairness, I suppose, there was a real feel-good factor around the place because, you know, it was kind of the first big concert in a long time there, so it was really... Uh, Who who flew you over? I know, we were living there at the time. Oh, you were living there, okay. Working there, yeah. Ah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, it was kind of the... I don't know, was it my father or someone on the... Got tickets and street. A load of us went there. Yeah. Cyprus did. Yeah. Did you ever have a bag of hoppers? No. Okay. So. Uh, one of the delicacies over there. Uh, give me some chips and a bag of hoppers. Deep fried grasshopper. Oh, yeah. No, definitely didn't. I'd say 12 years of age, and I wouldn't be <laughs> brave enough to try that either. I'm All right. Well, well done. Uh, yeah. you're, you're, you're about to shout for the Van der Man tickets, Killian. Thank you very much. Nate, Nate, thanks, thanks. Cheers. Bye-bye. Uh, Bye-bye. I went to the Oasis concert, Parky Keeve, 1996. What a concert. Yeah, I was at that. Uh, Katie Lang and Hot House Flowers in the Opera House, 1990. Uh, I remember that. I was at that. That was part of the Rocksteady uh, recording for uh, BBC. Nick Kershaw, at as a voice as a texter. Status quo in the Neptune Stadium. They were absolutely brilliant. I think it was the early 80s. Bon Jovi. No one else in my class in primary school knew who he was at the time. The Cranberries, Mill Street, 1995, says the texture. My first gig was The Cure in the Arcadia. Michael Jackson and Cork. Fantastic memories. First gig ever, Michael Jackson. First wedding song was Van Morrison. Have I told you lately? It would be a lovely way to celebrate. Uh, Echo and the Bunnyman, Cork City Hall, circa 1985. Bon Jovi in 1995 in the RDS. Uh, that was brilliant, apparently. Nick Kershaw, City Hall in the 80s. It was fantastic. Another Michael Jackson. Uh, Parky Keeve, 88. I was eight years old at the time. What a show that was. Bruce Springsteen, Wrecking Ball Tour, 
2012 at the RDS. Aha in the City Hall in the 80s. I'd love to see Van Morrison. You too in the City Hall. Westlife on the World of Our Own Tour. Nick Kershaw. UB40, City Hall. Metallica, 92 at the point. Uh, once again, UB40 in City Hall. The Cranberries in Mill Street again. 1994, Connacht Castle, Aslan were the headliner, Blink, the fourth dimension, and Doggabone were the other acts. A brilliant night and brilliant memories. Michael Jackson, supported by Kim Wilde. Fantastic concert. The Cure again make an appearance at the point. Meatloaf in Horns in Tralee in 1989. Michael Jackson, Michael Jackson, Michael Jackson. Mam- Mama's Boys in Sir Henry's. Remember the needle in the groove? Great song. Skibbereen, welcome home week. That was a long time ago. Ed Sheeran at Parky Kiev. Uh, must be one of the younger listeners, if that's your first gig. Uh, the Horselips. I saw Horselips in uh, a scout event in 19... 19- 76, 77. Remember Jamborora down in uh, Mount Mellory in Waterford. Uh, the Horselips played there. You um, two at the park, Beach Boys uh, in Dublin by plane from Cork Airport. Woo, in the late 60s. Shimsa Kushli. Uh, which one? There were many of them. I remember the Don McLean one being particularly good. Uh, that was in 1984. Uh, Boyzone in Ramblers in Cove. I remember that one well because I introduced them on stage and it was a very, very small crowd. Um, bon Jovi, 2003 in uh, Dublin. Beat in the Street was in the Lee Fields, the Lark by the Lee in 1985. My first was Take That uh, at the Point Depot, 93-94. If you have a story, by the way, um, you'll be able to come on air and maybe tell us it. You'll be uh, in uh, the line for uh, the draw for these tickets to see Van Morrison live at the Marquee on uh, 31st of May. So uh, tickets for Van the Man go on sale tomorrow, Thursday morning, 9am, Ticketmaster.com. I.E. Uh, Don McLean, yeah, Shim Sakushli, Pearl Jam in Mill Street, Tanita Tickerham in Conley Hall way back in the day, uh, The Wolf Tones, Status Quo, Loudon Wainwright III in Castle Bar around 1980. Great, great lyricist. I went to the doctor and the doctor said, friend, this should be the middle, but it could be the end. Genesee in at City Hall, 1979-ish, The Rolling Stones were supported by Marianne Faithful and The Freshman at the Savoy Cinema around 1966. Uh, went to see the Pope, <laughs> Limerick Racecourse, 1979. Uh, Rory Gallagher and the McCrew Mountain Dew Festival. It was a magical concert. Prince at Parky Kiev uh, in 1990. He was not impressed with the Ole, 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 Ole chants. I think he said, hey, whose gig is this? Uh, once again, Rory Gallagher, you two at Lark by the Lee. The Cure at Montpellier in France in 1981. And Queen at Slane in 1986. I remember one of the, some of the first concerts I ever went to uh, with my folks going to the Opera House uh, as younger kids to see uh, the brilliant Makem and Clancy and uh, to see those wonderfully talented musicians, Alan Barty, uh, the um, mandolin player from Dundee. And there was um, Nolly Casey and Artie Madlin. Uh, they would get married later on. And of course... Tommy Maycomb and Liam Clancy and what an incredible uh, ballad singer uh, and the power of music was evident there you know when you hear songs like and the band played Waltzing Matilda and that kind of thing it really sticks with you for life but I remember the first concert I ever got to go to myself was actually in Connolly Hall it was 1980 and it was the launch of the uh, Hard Station album from Paul Brady if I'm not mistaken Artie Midlin was on that stage as well it was the nearest representation to listening to the record the band were so tight uh, and so on top of their game uh, that I'll never forget it. But that was uh, Paul Brady back in Conley Hall 
back in 1980. There's a poem in the Prince gig from Donald Brady, I'm told, uh, and here it is. I'm stuck in work, so can't come on air to talk, or else my boss would get the gawk. I'd really love to see Van the Man. He'd be better than Prince. I'm a really big fan. Prince was big back in the day, but he wasn't impressed with Ole Ole Ole. The day was a scorcher down Parky Kiev, so I went along with my buddy Steve. But the sound was crap, and he wasn't very tall. To be honest, I didn't enjoy it at all. Neither did Steve, or so he said. I prefer to go see Van the Man instead. Text or WhatsApp Neil now. 0868-104-106. The Neil Prenderville Show on Red FM. And just a few texts to get to before we go for news at 11 o'clock. 0868-104-106 is our text line. I make one of our young members at Delaney's GAA Club, Calvin, who is only five years of age, rang the bell in Crumlin last week. Way to go, Calvin. Cancer-free. Hello to GAA stars. Uh, sent a messages uh, John Egan the soccer star from Toker Cork GAA's Brian Hurley and Waterford's Michael Kiley sent him messages of congratulations so well done to you on that one Calvin uh, on the good girl subject I make anyone man or woman who takes offence to the term good girl would want to grow up and uh, stop acting like a spoiled little girl uh, if someone said good girl to me at almost 75 years of age I'd be delighted says Mary we have more of them after news at 11 the Neil Prenderville show Conversation that matters. Seven and a half minutes past eleven, and Owen Corey joins us in line two. Nice to talk to you again, Owen. Always a great pleasure, Mick. Yes, uh, let's explore what's going to be happening for the old summer holliers. Looks like we're going to be facing higher prices, uh, not because of higher fuel prices, but because of lack of availability of new jets. That's pretty much it. Um, it's pretty basic uh, junior cert economics where the supply of seats exceeds the demand. Uh, the prices are going to be low. When the demand exceeds the supply of seats available for the summer, uh, the prices are going to be high. That's basically what Michael O'Leary was saying to a group of British journalists who came over last week. He'd be saying something similar at a press conference tomorrow uh, in between his little snipes, as Eamon Ryan we expect. Um, but his, his narrative is that not just Ryanair, but right across Europe, um, the number of new aircraft arriving has slowed down massively. It's slowed down for two reasons. Mike. One of them is Boeing, which were already behind on their deliveries. They've had to slow down further as a result of that uh, appalling... Um, yeah, the door, door popping on the... And that was on the uh, 737 MAX 9, wasn't it? <laughs> That's exactly it. Now, the MAX 9 isn't a Ryanair aircraft, but what has happened is the FAA have moved in and said you're going to reduce your deliveries to 38 a month from something over 40. It was supposed to be 60. Ryanair waiting 57 aircraft to start the summer. They're not going to get that. I'll find out more tomorrow from the man himself, but I think it's going to be around 42 or 43. One of them arrived last Friday. I think there's maybe we'll be lucky enough to get two more in. Um, On the Airbus side, uh, the way uh, aviation works in Ireland, Ryanair are a Boeing airline and Aer Lingus are an Airbus uh, airline but the Airbus uh, situation is quite different doesn't affect Aer Lingus but a lot of the um, Airbus from Lufthansa uh, uh, Wiz 
Turkish people like that have had to be recalled because of an engine situation with the Pratt and Whitney engines, engine dust. They all have to be stripped down, redone. It means an awful lot that the planned aircraft that were supposed to be in the sky this summer aren't going to be there where you don't have the aircraft in the sky that you need. You're going to see um, services curtailed. Usually they go for frequencies rather than cancelling an entire route. So yeah. where they used to have four flights a day, they'd bring it down to three. That happened with Barcelona last year, listeners might remember. Um, that the Ryanair, uh, what started off as the Ryanair schedule, got trimmed back considerably. But uh, hey, wouldn't, wouldn't, sorry, Owen, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't it be fair to say that that Ryanair is going to be impacted by Airbus as well? Because in part they're an Airbus airline. If you take their ownership of Wiz. Uh, it's, it, uh, they don't own Waze, they own uh, Lauda, the Austrian airline, and they oh, okay. have Airbus. Uh, and it's not very many of them. It really will uh, impact uh, um, the, the Ryanair Airbus aircraft aren't going to be recalled. Uh, but they do have a little Airbus, uh, you know, it's, it's probably there to keep, what's the phrase, to keep Boeing honest. When they're, lo- they're trying to negotiate a price, they say, we already have Air- Airbus. And it's, even though it's an Austrian airline, uh, a famous uh, Formula One racing driver, people, uh, some of some people will remember, Nicky Lauda founded the airline, but they um, used Lauda Air for quite a few Irish turnovers. I, I'm quite interested to see it arriving in Dublin. I haven't don't know if anyone has seen it in Cork, but they they because they own so many aircraft. Yeah, it's, sorry, it's 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 Lauda Air. I was getting mixed up with because I flew, yeah, I flew on a Lauda yeah, Air Airbus. Yeah, Nicky Lauda Air. And a Ryanair ticket. Yeah, it's an Austrian airline, and then um, they use them because they're five hundred aircraft. They can move them in and out. You know. Yeah. How many aircraft have Ryanair got now? About 535, um, and that will probably, there's supposed to be a bit more for the summer, won't be much more than what they have at the moment. It's a huge fleet, Mick, when you think of it. You know, it's much bigger than uh, any of the other European airlines, and it just shows the buying power. When you see uh, the order books for Airbus and Boeing, uh, how many of them go to Ireland? Because uh, Ryanair's fleet, uh, 535, it's a huge fleet, but some of, some of two of our uh, lessers, um, two of the people who lease out aircraft have even bigger fleets. Aircap have nearly a thousand, and Avalon um, have about uh, seven hundred. So you know we are big buyers of aircraft. We're probably uh, it's, it's, you, you have to if you were to go in and look for with your checkbook and say I want to buy an Airbus or a Boeing, you'd have to wait eight years. But what, so, uh, through, a lot of the slots that are in that eight year waiting list are held by Irish. Really held by Irish. Since the days of Guinness PD Aviation, I would imagine. He started it, Tony Ryan. Tony Ryan from Tipperary started it. You know, he started it in a very odd way. He was... um Working for Aer Lingus, station master's son got started working in Shannon, uh, got a job in Aer Lingus, and there was uh, Aer Lingus in the early 70s with this terrible problem. Uh, the troubles in Northern Ireland were d- d- damaging inbound tourism. They two Boeing j- jumbo jets, the original 747, the Queen of the Skies, and he, f- he phoned up um, somebody, or he got a contact with somebody in Thailand who wanted to rent it for the Thai summer, which is the opposite of the Irish summer, and said, there's good money to be made out of this. What if you actually didn't set up an airline at all, you just set up, uh, bought a whole load of aircraft and leased them out to the airlines of the world as they needed it, moved them from the Northern Hemisphere to the Southern Hemisphere. Great idea. 
And uh, that started the Irish leasing industry. Uh, Tony Ryan also founded Ryanair. He was a bitter, he was the great visionary of Irish aviation. Yeah. You, you and I own could talk all day on uh, on things aviation. Just one more, uh, one more left of field question, and we'll get down to the cost of people's summer holidays. Uh, is it true that Ryanair is blue and uh, yellow because Tony Ryan is a Tipperary man? There was a row, and uh, there was th- there were two Ryans in the meeting, and a guy called Liam Lonergan, who is the uh, owner of Club Travel, and the name of the airline came because there was two out of three were Ryans, and uh, apparently when they they were fighting over the colours, uh, Tony just said it's it's a Tipperary colours, but um, I mean like all these things, the the legends they grow uh, uh, good legs. They needed something that distinguished them from most of the other airlines that were operating um, in Western Europe or in England and Ireland at the time and they were very good colours okay. they weren't that far from the Lufthansa ones but definitely if I was from Tipperary I'd be claiming Ryanair for myself and if anyone tried to charge me extra for the baggage I'd say do you know not not know where those colours come from It'd be a handy place for a central airport actually Listen I'll, I'll throw <laughs> I know you'll wax lyrical so I'll throw a few questions out there uh, What about what about Joe and Mary blogs looking to book for the summer do, do these expect shortfall in aircraft deliveries they're going to get about 40 uh, of the 57 but that's going to mean less frequency not cancelling routes less frequency and more demand means higher prices so is now the time to book or will there be bargains the prices won't come down. The prices will go up. Um, the, 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 you know, we we think our Ryanair uh, in terms of it's because it's Irish headquartered. It bears the temporary colours founded by an Irishman, run by an Irishman, but only four percent of their business is in Ireland. Um, their different markets will behave in different ways. One of the things that has happened is we've got a little bit, extra, a few extra frequencies in Cork. Loving to see Cork coming back towards sixty destinations again, and they there are three or four new ones there uh, three or four from Ryanair so they, they while the prices might go up by 10% a new route can actually end up being quite cheap and while you're exploring uh, play, you know your options for that and Aer Lingus as well have a new Leon route which came in just before Christmas from Cork what has happened in Dublin is also different because there's this ongoing um, negotiation between the, the Dublin airport who don't want uh, don't want to breach their cap on passengers it's an old planning cap of 32 million. 32 million. They haven't got, yeah, they haven't got released from that yet. We expected, we all expected it to happen quite quickly. Somebody would intervene and say, this cap goes back to 2007. It was due to the number of lanes on the M50 at the time. Nothing to do with emissions, nothing to do with night flights. But they didn't raise it. And what Ryanair have done is moved three of the aircraft that were to be based in Dublin out of Dublin. A little bit of an impact on routes there. And you can see frequencies being trimmed back. Uh, hasn't all been seen through I suspect a little bit more negotiation is going on and I suspect what we'll hear from Michael O'Leary tomorrow at the press conference is, is a, a lot of pressure on the government to lift the cap that means that Ryanair could actually inter- um, put routes back into Dublin to give an example so we would see 15 or 16 new Ryanair routes every year out of Dublin uh, we're not we only see one this year albeit in Sicily and I suspect he's keeping um, he's keeping others in, in in you know in in his in his hand, uh, but he he is facing that uh, aircraft shortage right across Europe, and where he places them then comes down to uh, where the most money can be made in terms of 
it isn't just fares, it's a, a very complicated business. Very often it gets very good incentives from regional airports. That's been happening um, in Spain down the years, but it very, very dramatically in Greece and in Italy in recent years. So the advice is book as soon as you can afford to. Uh, and, yeah, and yeah, go now, jump now, jump now, because it, the prices are not coming down. You're sure of that? Um, it's like to be picking the winner of the Grand National, but when I see that one of the horses is injured, uh, I won't be putting my money on him. Okay. Uh, Michael O'Leary, of course, remains an en- enigmatic figure. A couple of months back when the uh, British Air Traffic Control said uh, 30% of our staff are out with COVID, you're going to have to cancel flights. He went into the press conference and said, so we told him to F off, but he used the full expletive. He uses expletives all the time. Um, I hope I don't offend anyone's ears here now, but I would do an awful lot of Irish language uh, broadcasting. And uh, I, There was a press conference many years ago where somebody asked him, he was talking, as one of the things that he did for a bit of publicity was, oh, we're going to charge people to use the toilets, we're going to charge fat people double because they weigh too much, those sort of things that made headlines. One of the things he was talking about at the time was running a transatlantic airline. Oh, I remember one that one. Germ- one of the German journalists asked him, would he have business class? And he said, we'd have the best business class. We'd have the best of food and we'd have the best of wine. And because a German a young German girl was translating this into German, he decided to have a bit of fun. And he said, we'll have a blowjob from the air hostess. And of course, um, I, I don't know, uh, Sister Dominica in school never told us what the Irish language for, was for that. So when I came to do my TG Cahar and Order G report, I had to uh, come up with the term. But he, is, he does use expletives a lot. It's quite offensive. And it's, it's something that um, he sort of wears as a badge of honour, as a sort of uh, part of his machi- machismo, machismo. And he would use that... Um, like you would in a dressing room, a sports dressing room. Uh, it's something that uh, I've seen work in some situations, but it also has backfired on him. Um, he does use it an awful lot. He's calmed but down. He's, but he's very polarised, uh, very polarised in opinion, uh, in that people either, either love him or hate him. And if you love him, you'll continue to love him, because uh, notwithstanding his long, uh, his long and loving relationship with our erstwhile Minister for Transport, he seems to be the only businessman I can get away with calling the government a bunch of clowns whenever he wants to. Uh, and that, that didn't start with Eamon Ryan. You know, famously, um, we've, various politicians down the years were lampooned on the on the in the full page ads, and um, that he, he he would take out in newspapers. And the European Commission, nobody fights with the European Commission. Whatever about fighting with the national government, no one slags off the uh, European Commission. He's been doing that consistently down the years. It's a very aggressive approach. You've got to remember, when he started, Ryanair was almost closed down. Um, the Dublin Air, the Air Inter, the predecessors of the DA at Aer Lingus were both moving to try and put it out of business very aggressively, as were British Airways and others. So he was in this corner fighting. And when he uh, came out of the corner, continued to fight in that very aggressive way. How it worked for him, though, in, and you've got to hand it to him, is that... A lot of people would send in complaints to airlines saying the coffee was cold or their, the flight was 10 minutes late or, uh, you know, my bag was, wasn't, uh, I was charged an extra kilo on the bag. He was so aggressive that he got very few complaints because an awful lot of that aggression that came across with the foul-mouthed language and with the taking on the politicians translated into, these are the rules with Ryanair. And yeah. if you know the rules, you can fly very, very cheap. And if you do uh, do anything to transgress the rules, 
uh, you will be penalised heavily with 50 euro charges and all of these horrible things that happen to people. Mm. So, oh, Owen Curry, you're, 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 you're the editor of TravelExtra.ie, so it would be remiss of me while we have you on, to, just not to look at holidays in, holidays in general. A lot of our hotels are taken up now, capacity taken up. Uh, by foreign visitors, shall we say? Um, Big issue. Other uh, other hotels are price gouging. Uh, Ryanair themselves will price gouge. For instance, you want to go to the Sun on uh, St Patrick's weekend, you're going to pay an arm and a leg. You'd be better off flying to Poland and flying down from there. Um, wh- what about cruise holidays? What about driving and ferry holidays? And what about staycations? How long do we have? Okay, <laughs> five uh, minutes. The hotel. <laughs> The hotel price, the hotel price is quite interesting because it's a very raw supply and demand situation. And it's, it's fallen unevenly. About 12% of the, of the beds are taken out of the system on government contract. That can be very high in West Cork and Arthur Kerry and Clare and Galway. It could be 30%. So that leaves, and it's also taken out the budget uh, side of it. So that leaves that while the five stars and all of those are pretty much unaffected by this, uh, the budget hotel supply in Ireland is under pressure. There's a, a lot of issues with self-catering. Uh, it does look like the you know the housing crisis has led the Department of Housing to put in positions on people who are providing self-catering accommodation in Ireland. And there's a big move to register Airbnb. So all the places that people stay on staycations uh, are all under pressure in th- that the supply line could be cut back and that will again impact on prices the um way the way around that is to um we are we're we're going to run into a bed shortage on the key plush wild atlantic way routes uh, but obviously you know it's it's a country where the roads are better and where you can base yourself in one place and you can base yourself just a little bit from the coast and still get very very good value you can also get very very good value on new routes i just talked about them uh, there's quite a few out of court this year there's five or six out of court between Aer Lingus and Ryanair and you also can get a pretty good value by playing one aircraft one airline uh, airport against each other you know flying into Murcia uh, and staying around Murcia is always cheaper than going into Alicante um, we've got good frequencies into Malaga and Faro but would think also uh, of taking a train um, Madrid has these amazing high speed train routes to all parts of the country that you know sometimes the uh, direct flights uh, spike on those Yeah so has Italy if you can find a cheaper airport to fly into uh, Can't hang it on much longer Owen we, we could stay here till 12 midday We have one oh, one, one question to ask you yeah. from, from a texter Please ask Owen why the Cork to Vroslaw uh, flight was taken away a very busy flight up to Covid but never continued afterwards yeah, and it's uh, the the uh, Cork Cork that I don't expect to see it back when uh, the aircraft become available. Uh, sometimes they use the uh, aircraft that are based in the other country. That's happened a fair bit with Cork Kerry and Knock in recent years. But it's one I'd I'd expect to see back because those Polish routes are um, they're they're very lucrative uh, for the airlines involved. I think that's just aircraft and variability, not the viability of the route. Okay. Owen Corey, editor of Travel Extra Delhi, as always, thank you very much. All oh, of a great pleasure, Nick. Cheers. Bye bye. Call Neil now. 0818 106. The Neil Prenderville Show on Red FM. 28 minutes past 11. The Neil Prenderville Show with Mick Mulcahy and Michelle O'Mahony joins me in line three. She's a historian and owner of OM History Consultants. Uh, morning to you, Michelle. 
morning, Mick. How are you? Tremble with fear, all you single men wishing to remain in that state. You better go into hiding. Tomorrow is, and uh, comes around every four years, is the uh, extra day in February where it is the prerogative of the ladies to get down on one knee and propose to an eligible bachelor. I think this relates back to uh, a kind of a deal that was done between uh, St. Bridget and St. Patrick, does it? Yes, Neil. Tomorrow is known as Ladies' Privilege or Bachelor's Day, depending on what you'd, what you'd like to call it. Um, I think in 1908, there was a series of postcards produced and it, um, it really showed men running for the hills because the ladies were ready to ambush them and they referred to it as Bachelor's Day. But the ladies tend to refer to it as Ladies' Privilege in much nicer terms. So tomorrow's case of Run for the Hills, if you're eligible... Or we can have a little bit of fun and maybe people out there are, would like to ring and let you know um, over the next day or two whether they actually did propose. But it does go back, you're right, to um, a deal that was struck between St. Bridget and St. Patrick. Now, as a historian, you're looking at the 5th century, you're looking at early Christian Ireland. So we're going to take a little, um, a little bit of it as tongue-in-cheek. Um, a little bit of it is folklore and legend. So the story goes that... St. Bridget and St. Patrick were contemporaries for about 10, 15 years of each of their lives, St. Bridget being a little bit younger than Patrick. And she obviously has become synonymous with women and the assertion of women's rights. And we've now got um, a day dedicated to Bridget and all things female and a female deity and a female saint. So she went to Patrick and she said, I think the ladies should have the right to propose to men. And he kind of thought about it and said, well, okay, once every seven years, so a little bit of a debacle ensured that she got him down to say, OK, we'll agree on four years. And then the leap year, um, the idea of leap year is not something that um, came in in the last couple of hundred years. It's been around since the time of Julius Caesar and people have been, I suppose, messing a little bit with the Julian calendar and the Gregorian calendar. So it became synonymous with the leap year tradition. So she decided then, OK, every four years. So a little bit of time passed and this four-year anniversary came around. So rumour, folklore, legend has it that at some point she actually proposed to St. Patrick. Now, he refused. And because he refused, she decided she would take it a little bit further and say, right, because you've upset me and you've refused my proposal, you have to give me a gift. And local folklore goes that he um, gave her a gift of a silk gown. And over the years, that has translated into a lot of different customs right across Ireland and across Scotland and other Celtic countries as we exported this idea of women having a right to propose to men on the leap year. So it became, I suppose, in Scotland in the 13th century, Queen Margaret, there was a young queen in Scotland, and she wrote this idea of leap year proposals into law. And when she wrote them into law, she decided men who refuse women and who give them a resounding no must give them a gift and the gift became known as um, 12 pairs of gloves or a dress um, something they could wear um, gloves were a favourite because it actually I suppose nobody knew whether there was a ring on the finger or not so it kind of concealed all of that idea of whether somebody was single or whether they were betrothed to somebody yeah, there's, a, there's and, a lot of this stuff rooted in history that continues to evolve over the years isn't there and stay in, in Irish mythology oh. and stay in, in our folklore and in our habits? Oh, de- definitely. Um, I suppose over the last year I've been writing a lot about Halloween traditions and women's Christmas. And what you do find is there's an overlap between 
I suppose that early Christian Ireland and paganism and you know Christmas being the light a festival of light and that sort of gets adopted into Christianity and there's a lot of toing and froing and I suppose this period with Patrick and Bridget is kind of what I like to term the sort of twilight years that gap where Christianity is becoming established and mm. paganism gets tied up into it so it's, it, it's quite interesting and obviously there's a little bit of tongue in cheek because you know facts aren't um, I suppose as a professional historian I would base a lot of what I do on facts but this sort of a, a chat and this discussion is really bringing in our traditions and our heritage which is quite important and A, a lot of these have, have gone to America as well haven't they? Like All, yeah. Hallow, all, all Hallows Eve we, we sent them Halloween exactly. they sent us back trick or treat yeah, Exactly exactly. so I suppose traditions that we consider sometimes like when you look at the leap year people would automatically assume that this is a global or a construct out of America or Europe but they don't actually realise a lot of these days that are in the calendar globally are actually Irish exports Honeymoon is another big one and the honeymoon came from Ireland because you you drink honey mead for a month or one moon so that became honeymoon Exactly, and it's all, it's all linked into this whole idea of paganism, the lunar calendars, the, the traditional harvesting calendars, um, and the calendars that our ancestors basically used, even things such as Newgrange, Drumbeg, how do you identify when would a leap year come? And I even had a look um, in the last few days into how a leap year actually comes about, and it's actually, you, you'd want um, degrees in maths and astrophysics. Oh, of course, there's, a, there's an extra quarter of a day in, in our revolution of the sun that's accounted for. Every four years. Can I ask you one final question, Michelle? Uh, in these times of uh, enlightenment and expanded equality, uh, are mm-hmm. we are we still? You know, it, it's legal now. Love is love. Same sex marriage. Everything. We're all equal. Exactly. Are, are we still that much of a patriarchal society that women only get one day every four years to pop the question? Surely it's open to them any day they want. Well, I, I would say it's open to them any day they would like. And if you look back at some of the postcards in 1908, some of them would definitely be quite misogynistic, the way they would portray women as if, you know, an ugly woman had only one chance once every four years to um, pop a question, which was absolutely horrendous. But then you have other postcards and other ideas coming through that actually, I suppose, would be seen as an element of female liberation because it you know, it brings it to the fore, it brings it out there. But I think today and in modern modern life, I think every woman would have a right to pop the question any day she felt like it. Um, but will, will, there, will there be fellas dropping hints now, <laughs> like the ladies do? I, 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 I presume they would. I, I, I presume both sexes are going to drop hints when a certain, you know, passage of time has passed and it's like, you know, make or break where we're going from here. Well, if he, if he hasn't the bottle to ask her himself, he could be dropping hints for her to ask him. I'm going to have to leave it there, but thank you very much, Michelle O'Mahony. No problem. Thanks. thanks. Michelle O'Mahony is Bye. historian. Thanks and owner of OM History Consultants. The Neil Prenderville Show on Red FM. Conversation that matters. Hello, very good morning from the Neil Prenderville Show. We're going to get to our Van the Man concert stories in a moment. A couple of texts first, though. Uh, hi, make a week supply of homemade soup for three adults with generous portions. Costs under €15 Euro in all to make. Vegetables are cheap. You can make eight litres and store it in the fridge, cover with cling film, and you'd have no issues. It would last six to seven days. Compare that to a shop-bought prepared soup with very little content. You get 400ml in the shop for €3 Euro compared to your homemade 
8,000 mil for less than 15. That's just a text that came in on 086-8104-106 on the basis we were talking to Feed Cork. Valerie Elif is on line one. Uh, morning, Valerie. Morning, Mick. How are you? I'm good. I hear you're a huge Van the Man fan, are you? I'm a pretty big fan, all right. Yeah. T- tell us about the first concert then you ever went to. The first, well, the first concert that I ever went to was Michael Jackson in Parky Creeve. Uh, so I was 15 years old and uh, never been to anything like that in my life. I had never been to a big venue for any type of um, any type of thing. And uh, my sister Pam rang the neighbour's phone. We didn't have a phone at the time and said that she was surprising me um, with a ticket to go. And it was just absolutely amazing. Um, I just, you know, and still, if, if people ask me to this day, what's my favourite concert? It has to be that, because I just still remember the excitement, the crowds. Uh, it was just, it was just an, an electric experience. Um, yeah, one, this, this, one that I'll never This, forget. of course, by yeah. a country, country mile, was the largest, uh, reputational, most famous, most adored uh, singer on planet Earth coming to Parky Kiev. And um, it must have been pretty much all downhill from there. Was it? If Michael Jackson was your first one, what what could ever compare? Well, my, oh well, you see, you know, I, I suppose we're very lucky. You know, we have um, we have opportunity, you know, to to go to a lot of concerts and gigs, and uh, we try to go. So we're both interested in that, and uh, with friends of mine and stuff. So of course, we saw Prince there when I saw one of your call or heard one of the comments of your callers. It wasn't great. But to us, it was fabulous. Yeah. We were young. Um, so I'm a big Damien Dempsey fan as well. So we're going over to London to see him in Paddy's Weekend. And just generally any gig you go to, even if it's, it's somebody that you don't know, you always get something out of it. You know, you're always going to have a new experience, meet some new people, hear some new music. Or if it's somebody big that you like and you're lucky enough to be there, you're going to hear it. Yeah, not not everybody it. would be like that. Now, go, go to a gig just to, on spec and see if I'd like them. They probably would have the the CDs or the the streaming done already, and, and make sure they like them before they go. So you're you're yeah, well and truly you're well and truly able to go to gigs up. anyway. Yeah, sometimes opportunities come up. Somebody might say, "Oh, do you know what? I have a spare ticket for something. Do you want to go?" And you've never heard of them or something, and you say, "Yeah, sure." Uh, so yeah, definitely. well done. Okay, you're in consideration for the Van der Man tickets. Stay tuned. Fantastic. Thanks, Thanks so Valerie. Much. Cheers. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks. Bye bye. Karen's in line too. Hi, Karen. Hi, Mick. How are you? This is going to be cringe now. I know. <laughs> I didn't realise you were at it until you mentioned it. I, I introduced them on stage. It was probably the most embarrassing thing I've ever okay. done. Uh, we're talking about Boy Zone. We're talking about Cove Ramblers, 94 or 95. I reckon it was around that, because I know I was only about 13 or 14, so I reckon it was around that time. And it wasn't too long after the infamous Late Late Show appearance that they, they gave. Yeah. So, yeah, and I, was, I think we pro- probably, waited for about four or five hours for them to turn up. I think they might have had one number one, maybe Love Me For A Reason or something. And that was it, I'd probably would have, been, just would have been quite a coup now for the Ramblers to get them. Uh, but I, I, I remember going up, try, trying to whip the crowd into a frenzy. All oh 300 God. people in a stadium that would, hold, that would hold 30,000 standing. Uh, and I was like, give me a B. And then one of the boys at home guys went, oh. And then give me an O. And he went, Z. <laughs> oh, God. It was a mess. <laughs> I thought it was great, but looking back, it was horrendous. It was horrendous, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, they, they gave a well, good sure, show. Good and, memories. Yeah. Absolutely. No, no, sure. money, no money was made, I would imagine, anyway. I doubt it. I doubt it. Yeah. But no, it's definitely my first. <laughs> All right. Thanks a million, Karen. 
Thanks, Mick. All right, we'll put you in consideration for the van, the man tickets. Uh, yeah, my husband's a big van fan. He's actually 40 this week, so we're hoping to try and get tickets, so it'll be great. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> and we, make the birthday. Brilliant. I, Thanks, I have Mick. no control over that, but uh, we'll, see, we'll see who gets chosen. Thanks a million. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, we're taking another caller now. Uh, van the Man is playing 31st of May, live at the Marquee, and that's a lovely venue to see him because... The, uh, you know, the reaction of crowds and what feeds back to the artists in the marquee really egg them on. It's been a favourite gig of Elton John. Uh, Roger Waters had an incredible gig there and said so. Uh, Eric Clapton, it goes on and on. Uh, but before they go on sale tomorrow, you could secure yourself uh, a pair of tickets in your hot little fish to see uh, Van the Man live at the marquee on the 31st of May. So we're asking you, what uh, was your first concert? Any particular memories around it? Uh, Vivian, good morning. Well, how you make your things, but you good? I'm good. You too. 1987. <laughs> 1987. Yeah, I won the tickets actually in the showgrounds. And you know that's that that puzzle game where you actually come along with the wire and it goes zigzags around. And oh, really? You'd, yeah, yeah. You'd get the fastest time to win the tickets. So I, I can't remember whether it was the summer or was it during the winter. It was it was on the old showgrounds, and I remember that. But um, and they they contacted me a few months later and they said that I I, I was after winning the tickets. So yeah. was it was that my, that that was I don't know. I'm not sure. Was it before or after? After the um, Rattle and Hum album, but that's the one where they came out. They, there was a lot of Beatles songs on, if I remember. And then they put on John Lennon's 1975 version of "Stand by Me," and halfway through, yeah. Larry, Larry came on the drums and Bono blasted into "Stand by Me." That's the concert, is it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's a bit vague now, to be honest. But, but uh, basically, then myself and my brother Ferguson, the two of us headed off to the concert, and I was 14 at the time, he was 13, so we got to the concert, which was a brilliant day. Excellent, in fairness, of course, we, I got a couple of fandies, and he got a couple of fandies. And what do you mean fandies? I, <laughs> I, 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 I thought that was a misspelling, I thought it was fondles. <laughs> no fandies, I think, a few kisses and that, like, but we got separated then at the end of the night, like, and I'll never forget as long as I live. He was. Uh, I was. I was convinced he was inside the league because I couldn't find him, and I was around around. And I got met the girls, and the girls put me in the back of the squad car, and we were driving around the city trying to find him. And about two hours later, then he just appeared out of out of the blue. Like, and I thought, jeez, I swear to God, I could have. I he was, was off it? with Joanne giving her, giving, her, giving her fondies a different girl <laughs> fondies that's oh, a new so one on me fondies that's a nice cart thing yeah. wearing the face <laughs> off her yeah that's basically it yeah 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 All so right. eventually and, uh, I, I spent the night driving around the back of the squad car around, around the city looking for my brother so well there, 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 a great, there's a memory in itself uh, what, yes, it's great, great, what, what did you make of the concert? You two were at the height of the oh, they, 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 they were brilliant. Sunday, bloody Sunday, now and everything. Like I was well into at the time, and geez, they were brilliant. Yeah, I, I think yeah. I was probably at the best U two gig ever. It was New Year's Eve, nineteen eighty nine, New Year, New Decade, and they'd reduced the Point Depot from nine thousand seats, reduced to forty five hundred yeah. seats in a bowl built Jeez. around the band, and and BB King supported, and they came on at thirty seconds to midnight. Uh, oh, blasting into where the streets have no name and that for me was the pinnacle of you 2 I've seen them since but I don't know Yeah, I, that, that was the only time I, ever, I went to see them actually but that's, that was my first concert was, was you 2 so alright uh, you're you're in with a chance to win yeah. the Van Der Man tickets not about it thanks Vivian great thanks, memories so thank you very much so William good morning to you sir William hello sorry William are you there I'm down. Oh, there you are. My fault. Okay. You went to the Bay City Rollers. In 1976. In the Savoy in Cork. Okay. Myself and my, my then girlfriend, who was my wife, now we're married 47 years this year, so. 
things went to come on the plan, as the man said. But it was um, the players of the basically role of mania. Les McEwan was the lead singer. That's right. Everyone was we- wearing the tart and scarves and the trousers yeah. and everything. And there was an Eric and a Duncan, was just, wasn't it? Duncan and an Eric. There was, there was. Yeah. And believe it or not, we still have CDs. There will be where records as well. We have records and CDs of basically roles being sets and everything. You know, nostalgia, I suppose. But the survival was just crazy to get in there. And we were training up, but we got in and we had a fantastic time there. It was one of our first concerts ever. So uh, that was in 1976. We got married the following year, 1977. 47 years ago. So that was 48 years ago, the concert was. And what's your, your wife's name? Helena. Helena Walsh. Helena Walsh. Well, congrats to you both. Uh, and you still remember that night clearly, do you? 1976. Never forget us. Yeah. You'll have been at lots of concerts, but that that was a very early concert for us. I think it was probably our first concert. Yeah. It, pro- it probably was. They, they were kind, kind of the first manufactured band after the Monkees. Uh, you know, the Osmonds and all of them were family. You couldn't say they were manufactured. Um, but I suppose they were first to the boy bands, weren't they? Yeah, kind of were, weren't they? Uh, and they, they yeah, still, yeah. you know, 50 years later, they still have songs that would stand the test of time. I'm thinking of Bye Bye Baby. Or, Bye Bye Baby, yeah. Uh, g- give a Little Love. All those songs, I, yeah. my wife, yeah, throws them on there, you know, and that stuff, she's big into that, like, 60s stuff, we're all into, so that would be our, our, our age group from the time we'd carry all these through, like, yeah. but uh, it's just, the BSC Rollers were the top band, they'd be like the U2 of the day, you know what I mean, they, they were like, um, all the top groups, I'd say, but that was the one, they were the ones to see, they were from Scotland, so... There were Celtic colours as well, I suppose, but it was just the main. It was just, I never forget it. Everybody just wanted to be dressed like them and long hair and everything the whole lot. But they're great, great memories. Like, you know what I mean? 1976, when you think about it, like. Yeah, that's a long way off, nearly, 50, nearly 50 years. William, thanks a million. Well, thanks very much, and thanks you. Have a nice day. Cheers, you too. Thanks. Bye bye. Thanks. Thank cheers. You. Let's go to Jen on line two. Hiya, Jen. Hello. Hello, Jen. Hi, how are you? I found a love. <laughs> Ed Sheeran. Ed Sheeran. And uh, you, you must be in the, in the younger cohort of listeners here, are you? Or, I am, I am, I am. If that's, um, your, if that's your first concert. It was my first concert in Cork. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. First concert in Cork. What did you make of it? Absolutely fantastic. Really, really had a good night. Uh, probably too much of a good night, really. But you you were on one of your friend's shoulders, I'm told, and he dropped you. I was, yeah, I was on a friend of mine's shoulders, and um, I fell off, and uh, everyone just started picking me up, and we went crowd surfing. <laughs> so I ended up, I was at the front, and actually ended up kind of at the back instead of going towards the... Uh, that's, that's the wrong the, way. Yeah, the wrong way, so I kind of got lost from all my friends, and so it kind of distracted me at the same time. Yeah, but uh, there, there was one man out here in shows are fantastic, aren't they? That that he can do it all, do it all from a loop pedal and a guitar. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I hope he comes back again. Oh, so I'm, sure, I'm, I'm sure he will. He he, he tends to use uh, Parky Kiev as the uh, the kickoff venue for his for his world tours. Now he's done it twice, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And Van the Man, are you a big fan? Um, I, I would mom and dad are more of a big fan but I definitely definitely love to go see him alright fantastic well done thanks a million thank you thanks, thanks Jen let's go to line four and Michael hi Michael good morning you saw the Bee Gees as your first concert 
Bee Gees first May 1968 in the Savoy, the old Savoy, was the cinema in those days. Yeah. And they were a bigger group back then, were they? Well, they were they were making it. They were massively. They were actually were a five band group in those days. That's what I mean. Yeah, they were. They, it wasn't just the yeah. three we we all know and love. Yeah, yeah, they were five. My my biggest worry at the time was I was living in bed and I had no car, so it was getting home and the last bus was eleven o'clock, and they were still playing, and I was debating would I or won't I, and I stayed at the end and I missed my bus. I had to walk out to Bishop's and out to my brother and stay with him. And and wake him up, is it? Yes, wake him up. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. Well, yeah, BG's, five-man group, first of May. And ever since I've been a fan and I've, uh, I've loaded the vinyls down through the years. Yeah. 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 If you've loaded the vinyls, there's, my favourite BG song is one that's not known by very many people. Uh, and I think a boy band should get hold of it and make it a number one hit. It's called Rest Your Love On Me. Yes, yes, because I'm one of the empty stone sayers. It's a gorgeous song. Yeah, they brought a load of stuff. Uh, Odessa, Ray of Precious, the beautiful day, three volumes of that. I could go on. I'm surprised we we didn't have anyone saying, I went to the Rolling Stones, because the Rolling Stones played in the Savoy as well. Uh, In the mid. I I thought Tom Jones, but I can't, my memory isn't great. Uh, He was either the Stardust or the Arcadia. Yeah, and there was no. a there was a big American star as well played, I think, in Mallow and in the Arcadia. But you're a sweet lip. Jim Reeves. Jim Reeves, that's right, that's correct. That's yeah, right. The, the Rolling Stones uh, played in the Savoy and stayed in the Arbutus, and apparently one of them saw a ghost. No, I was never a fan of the Rolling Stones. So no, no, me neither. The best bar yeah, band no. in the world. I don't see what all the fuss is about, but there you go. Yeah, the Beaches were, they were something else. Like, you know, I don't remember enough of the concert, but the song later on in life was time with time, yeah. All right, Michael, th- th- thanks a million. Got to take one more call here. Take care. Thank you, you sir. And cheers, bye-bye. Good morning from a big Van Morrison fan, I'm told, in the preamble here, who would love to win Absolutely. the tickets. Hiya, Ken. Uh, good, I'm good, I'm good, mate. How are you? Good. Your first concert? Uh, my first concert was in the early... 80s, it was Tin Lizzy in City Hall in Cork. Unbelievable. Fantastic. It was unbelievable. I I had to leave it early to get the train back to Cove. I was gutted. living in the city, so I was able to hang around and walk back out the lock and happy days. It was a fantastic night out. It was completely different to any kind of concert you get nowadays. In the first place, the the hall in in the city hall, the floorboards themselves would kind of have a bit of give in them. They were springy, yeah. Yeah, so with the people moving and the speakers were stacked literally from the ground to the ceiling. Like the, when the bass would play, the floor would shake, the people would move. It was absolutely phenomenal. Great, oh, yeah. great night out. And uh, yeah. I, I remember Philo's uh, black stretch limo. Of course, Philo never drove a car. No, absolutely not. And we, we, we came across that. So we had gotten word that the band were gone back to the, the, the restaurant has gone now, but it was Halpins. And. Um, I said I'd wander over there with my buddy and we went over and they wouldn't let us in and we were disgusted so we were walking back up Oliver Plunky Street and there's the black limo. So it's all tinted out in the whole bit. So we're looking through the window and the passenger window rolls down. There's still big glasses, mad curly hair and just, you know, looking straight at us. So we were delighted and we told him, you know, the concert was brilliant and he was like, yeah, cool. Glad you enjoyed it. But like he was just, 
It's brilliant. That's a, that's that's a couple of a second seconds of his life directed towards you, which is a great great memory. Ken, I'm going to have to Absolutely. leave it there. We'll, we'll we'll pick a winner during the commercial break and see who's going to see Van the Man live at the Marquee. Thank, thanks, Super Ken, and thanks thank to all of our callers on concerts. The Neil Prenderville Show on Red FM. Conversation that matters. And a very good morning from the Neil Prendival Show. Wrapping things up and uh, in the very little time left to us, I want to give a mention to the Marketing Institute Ireland. Cork Branch revving up the old DeLorean as they prepare to escort Cork's businesses and marketing community back to the era of electronic music, yuppies and big, big hair with this year's Back to the 80s Ball. And Judy Hopkins joins me on line one. Hi, Judy. Oh, beg your pardon. Are you there, Judy? Hello? Oh, beg Hello. your pardon, beg your pardon. We have the wrong line. Hi, Judy, how are you? Hi, Nick, I'm fantastic. How are you? Very good. This is a great networking opportunity and a fundraising opportunity for Cork Cancer Care Centre. Tell us a little about it. It, it is indeed. I will. Thank you so much for the great introduction as well, uh, Nick. So, yeah, it's we're blasting off at 6pm on Saturday, the 9th of March at Vienna Woods Hotel. Um, tickets are on sale and selling fast on mii.ie but just to give you a little bit around the event on the night uh, so we're obviously encouraging our attendees to dress to impress in their finest black tie attire with the optional uh, stylish 80s twist um, and uh, we're going to have a complimentary Disarano and Kylie Prosecco drinks reception um, a compliment of Barry Fitzwilliam our drinks partner uh, yourselves Red FM obviously are our radio partners and Colm O'Sullivan will be spinning the hottest tracks and emceeing on the night as well oh, the snazziest um, dresser in radio <laughs> exactly and uh, we are we've a sumptuous four course feast and wine we've our infamous goodie bags which are worth over 200 euro uh, and there's one for everyone in the audience and how, how can people get there Judy I'm out of time but maybe Neil can come back to this uh, before before the ninth. how can people get tickets or is it uh, is it just reserved yeah, so for those members no, it's open to everybody, so it is great for marketing and business community, but it's open to everyone, and you can get your tickets on right. www.mii.ie. Sorry it's so short, Judy, but I'm, I'm out of time. We will try and get back to it before the event. Thanks a million. No problem. Thanks. Thank you, Mick. Have Cheers. a great day. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Valerie, you're back on line one. How are you? Hello. Hi, you're going to Van the Man. Oh, my God, thank you so much. Oh, you've just made my day. That's absolutely fantastic news. And a little birdie told me, and I didn't know this before you were chosen as the winner, that you're going through a little bit of a fight every day, a fight for the good. A fight for the good, yeah. Second time around, um, cancer journey. And, uh, yeah, but you know what? As I say, you got to take the wins and band back in town. And now I'm going. Thanks to Red FM. All right. I'm well, so happy. Thank you so we're, much. We're delighted for you, Valerie. Enjoy Van the Man, 31st of May, live at the Marquee. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks to uh, our Thank production. Thank you so much. Thanks to our production team. Uh, Kevin Galvin. Thanks. Bye. Kevin Galvin, Seamus Whelan and uh, Claire O'Connor. Uh, and I'm back sometime in June, I think. But right now it's 12 o'clock and time to go for news. When court talks. Car people blow my mind. They talk to Neil Prendeville. On Red FM.